Uh, and Murph will appreciate this. Would you rather do wires at the state level or wires at the federal level? <laughs> state level. Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> if, if nothing else, just we don't have to have approval at D.C. Uh, to go up. So, uh, you know, we at one time had a an assistant DA that was in, involved in some stuff. And, you know, we walked a wiretap through my boss and I and drafted the app order affidavit, called the, the presiding judge, the appellate court. The attorney general has to sign off on it. We got that done in 48 hours. Uh, to go up on a wire. At 48 hours, Murph and those guys would still be, they wouldn't even be done collecting documentation. Oh, we can even write the affidavit. That, that, that was a corruption case on, I mean, uh, again, a public corruption case with a, a DA, an assistant DA, and uh, it was important. So, I mean, that was an all-nighter. Yeah. We yep. worked together, divided up, and we, I mean, but it was important and had the judge on standby. Uh, that wouldn't happen uh, federally. You know, it's right. got to go to D.C. And, and so... Uh, but so anyway, I love my time at the bureau. Again, another job I do for free the rest of my life. Uh, at this time, I'm I'm uh, presenting, kind of teaching a lot of stuff on on the Fourth Amendment at conferences, and uh, I th- I just thought it was odd that I'm teaching uh, knock and talks or consent encounters, uh, what's reasonable for constructive refusal on a search warrant, all these things. Never done it myself. It just seemed kind of odd to me talking about probable cause, I'd never had to evaluate it myself in the field. So uh, I really went to the uh, police academy, got certified as an agent, just as kind of the next step in my growth as a uh, law enforcement resource. Yeah, yeah, but that's kind of one of those things you just glossed over, you kind of went blah, 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 then I became an agent. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) let's rewind Uh a little bit. What was the discussion like, or what point did you say, was it because of the teaching? And by the way, do you remember... uh, uh, Thomas and Means, a uh, couple of attorneys, I think, out of South Carolina used to do a lot of teaching on Fourth Amendment, search and seizure stuff. No, huh? I don't know those that, okay. guys. Anyway, that was one of my staples of reading, to your point. You know, you always, I was from the other side. I was never a lawyer, but I wanted to say, look, but you got to dive into the law to right. understand it. New York versus Glass on the ability to look inside a vehicle without a search warrant, you know, et cetera, uh, besides, uh, you know, the Carroll Doctrine and stuff. So a- anyway, but uh, the reason I ask that is... Um, what, how did that conversation go? What was the tipping point to say, okay, I- I'm going to apply. Here I am leaving a job as a prosecuting attorney, and I'm going to go schlep it with uh, you know people in the field. How, what, so, what was the tipping point well, for you? Well, it actually was two phases. When I became an agent, got certified as an agent, I had no intention of leaving my job as a prosecutor. I was going to, or, I'm sorry, as an agency attorney. By that time, I'd become the general counsel at the Bureau. Uh, of course, you know, this like DEA, we license doctors. I have to deal with administrative law. I'm the general counsel. And, uh, but then all these guys are my friends and they say, Hey, Brian, we got to buy bus. Let's have you out on this. We're going to go do this controlled delivery. Come with us. And, uh, and I had my administrative duties. And so that's who I ran around with. I mean, we'd go to each other's houses and cook out and our, our wives were friends and we'd, uh, uh, you know, just have barbecues and those kind of things. And, I realized, and uh, at this time I'm 34, I believe, uh, maybe 35, and I realized that, man, life's pretty short, and I look forward to these, all these going out with my buddies and working these cases, and I like dread my administrative crap, and I felt like I was going to court on wire cases, and I'm just sitting, waiting on dockets the whole time, like life's too short, and so I just basically just pulled the trigger and said, I'll take a pay cut and I'll become an agent. And my director said, I'm 100% behind you. And that's how it happened. And just to, just to, for our listeners here, 
the fact that the investigators were inviting a, a prosecutor to come out on site with them, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a, Who that's invited a the lawyer? That was normally yeah. what you said. Yeah. Well, they were, well, it was like having, well, it was like having in-house counsel on the deal. And, uh, and so, uh, they, again, they're friends of mine. So they'd asked me to come out there and, and I just remember thinking, man, these guys make less than me. And I can't say that I'm happier than them because I make more. So I just took the pay cut and, uh, became an agent. The, the general counsel, um, he was a deputy general counsel. Uh, uh, my best friend, uh, who's now still the bureau's general counsel. He, they kept me of counsel like, uh, so they could, uh, I still wasn't a lawyer for the bureau as classified as an agent. And so, uh, so I did that and just, uh, became an agent, thought I would stay an agent the rest of my career. And again, I should realize I should quit making long-term decisions because I can't sit still. Were you married at this time? Yes. Do I have children yet? Uh, yes, I had, uh, had one at the time. Yes. Did your wife ask you to go get some kind of professional counseling? <laughs> so <laughs> the, she, she was kind of cool with it. Um, she, of course my wife did this kind of stuff that it was, you know, she still, if I was out on a deal, I don't do that now in my current position, but you know, she'd say, what time do you think you're going to be home? And I was, oh. <laughs> uh, and, and I just, she doesn't learn. And Three I'm like, days I, from I, now. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, when do you think I, if the snitch does this and shows up to package it eight o'clock, you know, you're forced an answer. Yeah. And then yep. at eight fifteen, I thought you're going to be home at eight. Like, no, you made me say I was going to be <laughs> my uh, advantage of my wife yeah. worked down at the police department. So yeah. she knew how it go, especially when I was a detective, yeah. it'd be one of those things going out the door. It was more like, see ya, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why I just kept kind of asking. And so, uh, but actually the, the tough one was my mom, my mom. I mean, she went to tears and she just said, Oh wow. Uh, she, she did two, two things. She said, you're, I don't want you to throw your law degree away. I'm like, mom, I'm not doing that. I said, everything I've done, I, I feel like I can be an effective agent because of my background. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, and I'll tell you, like, in my agent time, every search warrant I wrote, I wrote it like a me, myself, and Irene, as if I was the one that was going to defend it. Every report I wrote, I wrote it as if I would want to read it. Every right. consent encounter documentation, I did that knowing what was kind of there on, on the on the court side. And she's, then she, of course, she's the whole thing. I don't want you to die. And if you're going to, you know, the danger. And I said, look, mom, I'll tell you right now that there's a lot of stress i uh being a lawyer it probably will kill me i mean it's some it'll shorten my life mm -hmm. and uh, there's probably a greater chance of a uh quick death but overall i said that the, the way it's going and, and i it, it probably will be so i i just think it's that uh, kind of next phase for me so she was cool with that she and it, she thought i was gonna throw my degree away and i said absolutely not you know <laughs> oh mom i'm gonna die either way but i think this way is gonna be yeah. quicker that's not right. exactly my mother <laughs> knew kind of what I did, but she never really knew until she came to an award ceremony one time. And, uh, she would never, she said, I don't want to come to these things again. She didn't want to hear about what it was that you did the things to get the awards. Mm -hmm. for. Uh, and moms are that way, but I've never told my mom, don't worry, mom, I'm going to die one way or the other. I think this right. way is just better. Oh, I feel yeah. so much better now, son. Think about yeah. telling your mom and dad that you're going to Columbia. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can that's imagine where that. the, the you know the jaw hits the ground and look like you are a freaking idiot. We always suspected it. Now we know you are stupid. When my mother-in-law <laughs> found out I was going to Pakistan, that was kind of the same thing. You're going, what? You know? Yeah, yeah. 
I can't imagine. I, I, I still feel bad telling my wife, like we got, a, we got like a, we got a, like a one week mission. I want to be gone for a few days. And I just, it's, cause it's, you know, puts all the, all the picking up the kids and everything kind of falls to her. And, yeah. and she's phenomenally supportive. I mean, I, I can't do this without a, a it takes a special, spouse, but it's, it takes a special it, person, but it, yeah, I recognize it. It's hard on there. It's very disruptive uh, to yeah. their life. Now, did your wife do. ask you what time you're going to be home today? <laughs> yeah uh no well she knows today I, I told her that we're starting early so i should be done with this by you know uh, mid-afternoon and so we're gonna keep uh, you till like eight o'clock tonight speaking of that well let's so um but you went back into so when you became an agent how long was your academy when you went through now that was the osbi oklahoma state bureau of investigation no it was there was a uh our agency sends them there's an overall police academy for the state and so uh, at the time, it, I was the last academy that was nine weeks and was transitioning to 16 weeks. And so it would help me because it was only two blocks from our headquarters. So I would uh, go to the academy and I'd go to the headquarters uh, at night, kind of catch up on my emails and legal pleadings. Uh, my boss was covering kind of court appearances. And so because it was short and I didn't have to stay there, they've since moved it and you have to reside there. I was able to kind of pull off full being a lawyer and go to the academy. That's almost like being back in law school, clerking, working a full-time job and trying to study for the bar exam. Yeah, it was a, there, it was a tough, I mean, it was only nine weeks, but yeah, I was trying to do both and maintaining kind of keeping on top of stuff and doing stuff at night on the weekends and on my lunch hour. Sometimes I go, I could go right back to the office. So when you went through Jeez. the academy, what was the biggest paradigm shift you had versus what you thought it was going to be like versus what it was? Because you've always been on the other side. You've seen, you've obviously worked with a lot of people that had to go through the academy, but now you're going through it. W did anything change for you or did you say, yeah, this is kind of what I thought it would be? I, I would say it was kind of what I thought it was going to be. I mean, I'd, I'd been in, at that point, I think I'd been in law enforcement 11 years. And so I had, uh, I, I had been in law enforcement that long. And so everybody else are kind of, it's like a basic training. They're, you know, young as hell, never done this. They, uh, I, I don't think, I'm not sure we had anybody in my whole, there's a hundred of us. I don't think any had any prior law enforcement experience. Now, some of them were working. At the time, the, the you know, so short, short-handed at a small department, they'd say, scurry in, go to the academy, and they'd work for a few months, go to the academy and come back. But in terms of uh, no one had previous law enforcement careers, and so I, I just hadn't been around it. And uh, it was just, you know, the, the basic stuff. Uh, the legal block was kind of odd, you know. Uh, Were you correcting them? <laughs> Uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> so here's the deal. I, I told myself, I, I, wait a I minute. Want, I can I wanna... see where it's going to class. Wait a objection, you're on. I mean, teacher, objection, teacher. <laughs> yeah. So I did. I told my, I promised myself <laughs> I was going to shut up and just, I want to get through this and be done. And how long did that last? Um, the second day and <laughs> of, the, of the legal block. And, um, and so, um, I don't know. There was, there were two occasions. I mean, we got into screaming matches. He's like, bullshit. I'm like, bullshit, motherfucker. I mean, we got into it in front of the class. Um, and one of them, he'd said that the, it was a stupid thing. The, the fruit of the poisonous tree applies to Miranda violations. And I'm like, uh, no, that's actually not recent case of Batain. It's, that's, uh, the, the only violation takes place when you admit the statement. That's not, oh, you are absolutely incorrect. And it pissed me off. So I went to the office and I printed off the, 
fucking case and I highlighted it, put it on his podium. I can and, tell you've gotten over this. Yeah, and he comes back and so what he does is he goes I'm outside learning, and says, I'm glad you've learned to deal with your anger issues yeah, and stuff. And so he well we got an, and and uh and the other one was on a fourth amendment issue. But yeah, so I put it on there. Now he, I'll say this the fun here's a there's an anecdote to this. So everyone saw us go after it. I mean we went after it I say that two or three times. Um he called me outside on a break and he was, he was a chain smoker and said, you know what? I've read that and I'm going to have to change the way I teach. And I, he, and which is fine. He apologized. He was uh, incorrect in it. And he was a very, a very smart guy. He'd been a defense lawyer, but a very smart guy. And uh, I just said, look, you know, at the Bureau, we have the ability by statute to appear in court. You're a skilled litigator. I mean, he was a good arguer. And I said, you ought to just do that. You can appear from time to time uh, in court. Just kind of use this. We don't have that. You know, we need always good people in, in public safety. And so anyway, I kind of said that while we were talking outside. We had one of the argument about uh, a scrivener's error on the description and a warrant and, you know, it's whatever. I was right both times. But uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you got so. Name. But I was right both times. Yeah, yeah. There so you go. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we graduate at the graduation deal. I went to him and I said, hey, we get a picture. I mean, after all this, people were joking about us getting into, you know, and he talked to me for about 30 minutes. Whole class was waiting. The class commander comes out and looks out like, Are you guys? And he's like, go back inside. We're talking. And so he is out there. You know, I mean, I'm a student, but the, you know, the, the class uh, uh, commandant would actually listen to the instructors and told him to go because we were going to talk. And uh, anyway, so he tells me when I'm graduating, he said, uh, you know, ever since you, I've not argued with anybody in years. I've been here at this job. Uh, Ever since you said I ought to get back in the courtroom, um, I just can't get out of my mind. And I got to tell you, I've put in an application to be an assistant DA. Within a month, he's he is still an assistant DA today. Wow! Uh, Fifteen years later, so we so we so we did that. And he's a talented guy, and and became a prosecutor because we argued in our in the. Our academy. So, hallelujah, brother! You converted him. You brought him yeah, over yeah. to the light side. Had another altar call. Amen. <laughs> right. Hey, by yeah. the way, how, when you started, how many people knew your background? I mean, by the it, did he get around pretty fast? You were coming in mm-hmm. being a prosecuting yeah. attorney. Uh, I, I gosh, Morgan, I'm trying to think. Probably we went around the first day. Where are you from? What's your background? Uh, type thing. I, I I don't remember that. Um, it became pretty evident when the legal block started about the, I think that was <laughs> like the second early day on. is what I heard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of, and I had no intentions of doing that, um, but I just couldn't stand it. And it was like, that's not right. And I'm, I'm not letting them say this thing. And I just did that. I try to be respectful than it. We just, you know, it, we, but it, I got into, look, I got into a disagreement like people, it's like a defense lawyer in your office telling you, yeah, that's bullshit. And we kind of go back and forth. It was kind of one of those deals. Yeah, but you know mm-hmm. what you did? You did the right thing though, because th- that's the other right. thing though, too, is you, you can't let people go out armed with bad case law. They're going right. to get sued. You're going to lose cases. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah or so. that's a point, or you'll miss the opportunity to make cases because <laughs> you've been told you can't do X when in fact you <laughs> can do X, you know, and follow it through. Right. So I'm glad you followed through on that. So, um, but how did you go about when you said you work for the bureau? Let's be very clear now. Which which bureau are you talking about? The Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics. It's just okay. like a DEA for the state. Okay, uh, and separate agency from the OSBI. Yes. Yeah, we have our own independent commissions and directors. Uh, well, so it's, why a, it's a freestanding is that? agency. Um. So it's before my time. The uh, th- there is. Uh, I've heard, I don't know if this is accurate, there was just some concerns about political influence on uh, the state police. So the uh, uh, the Department of Public Safety, which is Highway Patrol and some other a few agencies, they report directly to the governor. But we have three state agencies, OSBI, which is investigations, uh, Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics, 
and uh, uh, and they used to be one agency and split off. With indep- we have independent commissions that oversee and appoint the director. And uh, there's one called uh, we have a uh, alcohol licensing. That's just a much smaller agency yep. that kind of deals with the alcohol license. How do you deconflict uh, when when they're doing a dope case and you're doing a dope case? How do, who you know? How do you control those things? Well, the, our OSBI will not do any dope cases. They just do. Uh, they have no. They only have original jurisdiction on like uh, like oil field theft. But so they're a support agency that if if an agency, a smaller department, has a major homicide or a conflict case, an officer involved shooting, they'll ask the 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 OSBI bi uh, to come in and investigate uh, but for all of us for, for deconfliction we just well there's one central database it's overseen by it's actually maintained through our office funded by Hida, and you can do event which is the actual like the deal itself or a subject deconfliction which is the person to make sure you're not investing investigate someone that you know investigating somebody that another agent is or just kind of collaborate or if you're going to go do a deal make sure it's not an undercover officer and, you know, on both sides and a blue on blue. And that's kind of the event deconfliction. Well, and that's what I was getting at with Murph earlier, Murph. You know, that was, that was his case where he was down in Florida, that pickup truck that's got the, was it Hialeah or some other cops that were in there? Yeah, some Hialeah and our car officers, we were going blue on blue. And thank goodness. I mean, thank goodness it turned out the way it did because uh, when we came up, uh, we came up with our vests on and our, our guns out, you know. If if we yeah, hadn't approached but, them, it could but, have gotten real ugly. But you know, a lot of times, I mean, Murphy knows this. You're on a deal in surveillance. You don't. You're not wearing your body armor. It might be in uh-huh. the back seat. But if if some somebody walks by your car and looks in the windshield, they can't see a big police ribbon on your vest. Right. And so it's there. And so if if it happens really quick, you got to jump out, and we all look like turds. And mm-hmm. uh, well, see, know, I always wore my vest underneath my clothing because it looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Then nobody wanted to screw with me. No, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, no, it, it, I believe me, Morgan, it did not look like Arnold, I'm telling you. It don't matter how you wore it. <laughs> well, I wasn't talking about Arnold then, maybe Arnold now. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's talk about then going into this next case, because um, okay. when you got assigned, how, where did you stay in the same area, work in the same area? So you're now an agent in the same area that you were prosecuting an attorney? No. So I'm, I'm um, at this point, when I became an agent, I transferred to Tulsa, which... Because our headquarters is in Oklahoma City, just for for uh, my wife and I, it, it worked out great. Because at that time, her sister lived here, my sister lived here. After we move uh, to Tulsa, then both sets of grandparents to be around grandkids. So now all of us live in Tulsa, but none of us are. She's from Northwest Oklahoma. None of us are from this area, but now it's home to our whole family. Yeah, and so. Uh, so I, I go to Tulsa, and that's just kind of where family is, and had no, never been in Tulsa, I mean, other than driving through it before I moved here as an agent. Well, back in the day when it was still called the Earl Roberts Towers, my sister was married uh, in that her husband worked for a book publishing company, Christian book oh, publishing yeah. company, on the 57th floor, and I think our reception yeah. was on the 60th floor or something. That, I mean, it was a, Tulsa was a, yeah, that was an awesome building. Yeah. I guess it's a cancer institute now or something. Yeah, it's a, so the, the, the Cityplex, it's, it's a number of things. They're, 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 it's a, they, it's an old, the old hospital uh, was for a while, but there's a number of offices, there's radio stations there, there's all kinds of things in there, and it, which is actually like about two blocks from the, from the, from the Bureau office on Lewis. It's, it's about probably 81st, be two miles away exactly uh, from. So I drove by it every day on the way to work. So let's talk about now as an agent, how did, how was, when you first, now, now that you're getting into it, how is the work for you different than as the prosecuting attorney? I know that's kind of an obvious question, but now you're doing things, now you're generating the paperwork and the work that guys like you used to review and take to court. 
So, you know, I'd been an agent in, in Oklahoma City first for a year. That's where my uh, kind of the FTOs, which again, were very dear friends of mine that, that had trained me. Uh, I come here and, you know, I had just this background. And what I found was whether it was like a corruption case, a defense lawyer that would be uh, in trouble that uh, they wanted to investigate. Uh, I, I got to know all the people on task forces. Uh, I was still in the legal division. I was supervised the wires on this side as a supervising attorney. And so I just got to play a role in a bunch of other people's cases. And I uh, worked with uh, the uh, HSI, saw a lot of good friends there, uh, the DEA groups, uh, the Hyde and enforcement groups, and uh, and also with uh, the U.S. Marshals. There was a, a fugitive task force, and so I kind of got attached to them uh, for a while too. And, and, uh, they were never full-time assignments. Um, uh, and I just, uh, again, still stayed in the, the, I mean, I'd been a prosecutor for 11 years. I still know all the people, uh, there and, uh, just kind of had this, this weird crossover and just would try to go and work with, uh, uh, all the people. And, and, uh, again, there's just, there's a lot of investigations that just have kind of this, uh, strange component that being a, a career drug prosecutor would help with. And so I just was blessed enough to where uh, I got uh, involved in a lot of people's cases. I mean, if I, I should, another way of saying that is if it's a jacked up deal, hey, let's call Brian. And I'd kind of go and, and, uh, and do that but and just that, made dear friends the whole time. But, that, but did that cause a problem from a rule standpoint is that did you have conflicts then with other attorneys because you are in a sense acting as a supervising attorney or working as well as being the agent in other words are they saying hey guys i mean you got you, you got to pick one or the other you can't do both or could you do both so well, well um no so i would either do one or the other in, you know kind of in cases obviously i would never uh appears a lawyer in a case uh which i was a witness which is kind of a, well, that uh, would be and, great to cross-examine your stuff oh, yeah. your honor, the witness is entirely credible yeah. i think we should just go to a direct finding of guilt yeah um and uh, again which which is exactly what happened every time and i felt like saying that but uh, I, I wasn't able to do it <laughs> um you know it's really weird look I, I i need to respect the fact that 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 i had a role as a an assistant da but being a drug prosecutor 11 years I'm taking cases maybe to somebody that had only been at law school two or three years. I mean, I'm still teaching at the state conferences on things about conspiracy prosecutions and search and seizure. And here I'm teaching at the, at the prosecutor's boot camp they have every year. I'm just one of their instructors. And so uh, only one time did I ever have to play that card. And it was just a prosecutor was telling me I'd, I had done a cell phone, uh, a search, a warrantless search. And he said, uh, you know, uh, this is before Jones, but where every, uh, uh -huh. the courts were very clear. You got to explain could, Jones. You see, you're okay, a lawyer, you throw that out just before yeah, sorry, Jones sorry. Plessy versus yeah, Ferguson a, and whatever. You know. Yeah. So the, um, initially the courts were very consistent. It, it, it changed a little bit, but that if you arrested somebody with a cell phone, you could search that cell phone incident to arrest the flip phones. They equated it to like just uh, a Pocket wallet letter or a wallet uh, or something. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. An address book and what have you. And then because of smartphones, it was in, and Jones was basically kind of stands alone. They didn't, they didn't extend the law. They said cell phones are so different with smartphones, what you can see and, and uh, look into someone's home with cameras, blah, 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 that you need to have a warrant. Well, this is before that. And it was a flip phone. 
And so he basically just said, uh, and, and his thing was an exigency. This, this guy basically, and what happened is I saw the case get continued because he didn't call the right witnesses uh, the, in the case. And I was, because I, did, I didn't want to say a victim witness and I was in the courtroom. And then he goes up and this little junior prosecutor just said something like, uh, uh, I think we have to get rid of this case uh, because uh, your, your search is bad. Where's the cell phone going to go? And I said, okay, junior. Do you know about the, uh, you know, the Anchando case, which I'm, I'm, that's why that's relevant. It's not important, but uh, no. And I start quoting stuff and he didn't know what I'm saying, but it sounds right. Does he know your and, prior prosecuting attorney? Uh, he learned it pretty quickly and, uh, <laughs> and it sounds right. And, and I'll say that after that time, uh, the guy had called me, I seen, he went to another County and he had called me in to be an expert witness on something. And, and he, and, and I'll say this to his credit. He said, you know what? I think I've looked at that law. You were good now. And we're all going to be uh, good. So that's that's the only time. I didn't like doing it, but I was a little bit because it told me that my like I had uh, uh, done a bad search, which what that means is I in, I committed constitutional misconduct such that the court would suppress what I found to punish me and teach all officers a lesson. Now, that's that's what the exclusionary rule is to suppress evidence, the Fourth Amendment. And uh, I think that's lost, like it's some kind of voiding a contract. Let's just see who gets to win here. And if, if, if you're going to say someone did a bad search, you're going to say, hey, you're, you're doing clear misconduct that if true, I would lose my qualified immunity when they sued me. And, and it's so, potentially precedent setting, too, if somebody yeah, feels and it so um, that was the only time. And but but most people knew me because I would be up there and they would just they call me with kind of issues and questions, which I could kind of. Uh, I mean, obviously, we all got to be on the same team, and I, I don't ever yeah, want to be adverse. We have enough adversaries in public safety; we cannot eat our own. I mean, I just don't right. think we advance that. So um, that's the only occasion, and and it kind of happened organically. I and it was all good, but that's the only time I. Well, let's had talk about your mental that. health because you talked about the the other uh -huh. stuff was kind of like soul crushing, doing a lot of admin work. How did your behavior change? How did you change? And how did you feel once you got out into the field? You know, with the, the, uh, I remember I thought I was the most pro cop prosecutor out there. Hell, I might've been, I don't know, but I prided myself on that. And I realized the very first case I did, uh, I'm still a lawyer, but, uh, back then uh, this would have been in 06, um, you know, this is the uncle Fester meth lab days where you would, they'd buy cases of pseudoephedrine and manufacture meth and a guy with three teeth and a mullet in a trailer shaking up a bottle and it would just make meth so basically an osu grad yeah that's exactly right yeah I think, <laughs> oh, well, oh, oh i the, know they were they were all from kansas i don't know what the deal was there you, you know? go and there so, you go <laughs> and uh so but oklahoma was the first state that put it behind uh the counter we made it prescript we put it we actually didn't make a prescription we put it behind the counter and you had to sign a register uh, it took a trooper getting killed on video by a meth cook on his body and a horrible uh, wow. just executing him when he came across a meth lab in rural Oklahoma. And then and once that happened, then they, they the, the lobbyist couldn't stop uh, that law. So we, we passed that law. Of course, our meth labs dropped 90% overnight. Then yes. everyone else picks that up and uh, bam, we don't have meth labs, which again, I as, as a kind of to walk back when I talk about policy... You know, when people say, oh, you know, like, you know, like some kid named Connor goes to his intersectionality class in college and say, oh, we tried prohibition. It didn't, didn't work. <laughs> you know, they're talking about alcohol. Well, that's why that chapter is where the meth labs go. We don't have meth labs anymore. Mm -hmm. Didn't legalize it. Didn't give them treatment. We did enforcement. 
And we passed a law, prohibited people getting it, made it suck to cook meth, and it stopped. Uh, And so uh, we don't have those anymore. Uh, But back to this um, case. So in Oklahoma, people couldn't get pseudoephedrine. Well, this this lady had flown to Utah and went to all the stores, bought a suitcase full of pseudoephedrine to bring back, which it's a precursor chemical to manufacture meth. She's bringing it back to cook meth. And I got a tip. She's going to be at the uh, Will Rogers International Airport in Oklahoma City. So I'm just, I'm just going to do a consent encounter. And I'm going through my head of, is this going to be a USB placed attention of the soup? Ca- I mean, going through all this kind of crap. And I knew her. The reason I got the call, she's from my hometown or the district I was at, put her husband in prison for manufacturing. So the narcs up there called me and goes, hey, Brian, so-and-so's coming back with a suitcase full of meth from his West Snitch. We know this. We think it's legit. So I was like, I'll just do a consent encounter. So I walk in. I know her. And I, and, uh, I said, I badged her. I said, Hey, Deborah, how you doing? I'm just, you know, I'm working at OBN now. And then she just, and I'm thinking I'm, I'm going through all my mind to make this freaking case. And she just says, all right, Brian, look, all the freaking pills are in that suitcase right there. <laughs> like, Son of a bitch. What? All in so, you can't make it this easy. Damn it. Objection. Yeah, I, was, I was like saying, I wanted to go, you know, get my digital recorder and say, special agent Brian Serber today's date is blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'm about to talk to Deborah and I like shit. And so I don't want to stop it. And so I do this consent encounter. And if anyone say, hey, why don't want to record it, dumbass? Like, well, I didn't know she was going to do that. I was fixing to contact her to, to detain her luggage. And then all of a sudden she tells me it's there and I can look in it. So and the point I make and, and I tell that story when, I, when I'm uh, trying to talk to prosecutors or other officers is like, look, I never 11 years of trying to hang out with cops, advocate for them in their mission. I realized when I read that shit on Monday morning. I know how the story ends mm-hmm. and I never appreciated that till I did it myself. Like I, you don't know, is it a consent encounter? Is this guy going to fight you? Are they, are they going to run? And so to have all this planning of how you'd want it, I just didn't even fully appreciate that. So that's, that's probably the, the first sticking experience that I just, I, I used all my, everything I'd done to plan to make this great case. And it just completely because her cooperation like just gave it to me, and I and I I couldn't stop in the middle of it and just ask her to re-say it on my digital recorder <laughs> in my pocket, you know. And so I'm like, damn it! And so that's that's just that's exactly how that deal went down, and 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 it, and it served me so much. Look, being a prosecutor absolutely helped me in uh in being a narcotics agent special operator so likewise how did you being go, a special how did you go back and sorry because i want to before you okay. move on how did you go back then and because i used to do the same thing but it would like with the um you know when you're talking with them and you don't have a we didn't used to record everything up front but i would always go back and record basically the summary i'd set them down and said you remember when i brought you in right i set you down here Remember yeah. when I advised you of your rights? I told you this. I told you this. Remember when you said you agreed and you signed right. yes, yes, yes. And, you know, and then we signed again. I'd get that back all on tape to kind of recap it. How did you go back and recap that with her so you had the evidence of her uh, uh, permission to search? Um, Morgan, I... I I should have done that. I, I'm not saying to say that I, I don't re- recall independently. Uh, <laughs> there's there's, what, what, a, there's what, a legal answer. I don't recall independently, I, I, Your well, Honor. I mean, I'm trying to think. I look, because what stuck with me is is that I, I, I remember like one of those things, like when Reagan was shot, Challenger exploded, where I was standing at the, in her face when she said that in this shock, like, oh, hell. So h- how I did that, yeah. uh, that is that I'll say to all to, to, to the peace officers listening again, 
there's two types of defenses. There's a legal defense. I didn't do it. That's not my pants, you know. Uh, and then there's the, uh, not, they're not my pants. The drugs are in, which they always say, you know, have this dope in your pocket. I don't know, not my pants. I don't know why. When they go to turd school, they say, first thing you do is deny the pants are yours, you know. Um, well, and it's, no, it's we great. got the stories of the guys who denied the syringes found in his rectum were his. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't yeah. not mine. Well, how'd they get, get there? there? Yeah, anyway, yeah. which is well, more surprised than a, me. The other, other defense is a legal defense, which they're going to attack the officer. And I'm like, look, guys, if you do recorded interviews on the guilt, did you do it in confessions? You also need to interview, just like you're saying, Morgan, on, hey, why'd you give me consent to search? You remember doing this. And it's not just, did you have consent? Was there any coercion? Did I, you know, and, and, and short of them saying, what do you mean? Why? You told me you're going to whip my ass if i didn't which that you know didn't happen then that's now you're at because when you litigate the suppression motion on voluntariness on a consent his state of mind's at issue the entire case they're gonna do it in front of a judge not a jury so why not get a an interview as to their state of mind as to what they were thinking at the time and, uh, and i think that's a, a great thing to do to kind of even if it happens beforehand sit down and kind of go through and uh i used to joke about it too i said now look did anybody threaten to you know draw and quarter you put you on you know the rack and you know torture you or anything anybody try to threaten you no one of the favorite tricks i learned from another guy too was you feed them you go down and get them mcdonald's or something you bring them yeah. in a, on a big case you, you, sorry pal you're not getting mcdonald's just because you wasted you know heisted a bike but you know on homicide cases or stuff you get them a mcdonald's take a picture say hey you, we just want to show that you received the food because we're spending public money hey just give me a picture they'd go hi you know i got the mcdonald's kind of hard to argue that in court when right. uh, you're eating you've got a smile on your face with a mickey d in your hands oh, yeah. yeah well and, and uh and you know you know uh, as a another trick and heck you may may edit this out but like on consents like interdiction like the, you know they have the right they have the right to withdraw the consent it's our burden to prove they didn't withdraw it before you found it if you say you got a white supremacist gang member you're out by yourself it may be perfectly reasonable to put him in a situation like in a uh, in a car where they're detained where he can't get out and do this but that also may keep him from revoking his consent so you may roll down the window if, if you try to leave yourself an out to say, hey, if you're revoking your consent, so we can just say, hey, I, I changed my mind and I couldn't get out and tell him. But even if all that happens, when I go back to your point, Morgan, of in the interview, say, hey, dude, I, I appreciate you, you know, you're being cooperative. You know, you let me search. Why'd you let me search? I don't know anything about it, which if you deny knowledge of it in there, that shows the voluntariness that you let him search because you said you didn't think it was in there or I didn't think you'd find it. And it also kind of removes there, as they say, the legal term standing to object, right? Because if it's not right. yours, there's certain things you yeah. can't object well, to. Right. And so, uh, so again, that's just one of the reasons to say, what were you thinking when I was searching back there? Like, I was hoping you wouldn't find it. I, but anything other than, well, I, I was wanting to tell you to stop. And, and, uh, and so now you're actually getting that, you know, you're making a written, uh, recorded record of what that mind state was at that time. I actually learned uh, a technique from somebody who was in sales. And it was actually, I used it a lot on interdiction stops or even consent to search stops because. When you're out and you want to buy something, Murphy, you know this too, somebody's trying to pressure you. The easiest way to say, no, no, I'm not interested. No, the people want to say no. 
So I would phrase all of my questions in the terms of, hey, uh, certainly you're not the type of person that brings illegal narcotics into our state, are you? Well, no. You know, certainly you're not the type of person who would engage in violations of the law. No. You know, and then it would all lead up to, would you have any objection then if I searched your car for these things? And they want no means yes. So they would say no. They feel good about saying no, even though no means yes, because you say, can I search your car? And they go, no then you're done, right? So I would just flip the question around a little bit and say, would you have any objection if I searched your car? No, thank you very much, stand here. You know, And then you get somebody to talk to them and distract them while you're searching. And then, you know, again, you watch their body language. Am I getting close? Am I getting close? Are they getting more nervous? But everybody's got the things that they learn over time. But like you say, you've got the advantage because you have got the training experience, the degree and stuff to know, you know what's going to play out in court later. You know you know the limits of what you can do and still have it be admissible in court where a lot of cops are strictly just relying on training and some skill, but they don't have the legal basis that you do. Right. And and what I've seen for the most part, I do not see, I mean, I've been around in, in different states and in, in this game for, gosh, 26 years now. I do not see violations of the constitution i I just don't in in searches now do officers always fully articulate why they're being reasonable because that's everything with the fourth amendment and the searches is reasonable was the officer's conduct reasonable i don't think we have unreasonable officers i just i just don't see that Uh, especially when i went out there in the field now again to do they always write down everything that's relevant to what makes that reasonable Probably not. And that, that's what I you, you learn when you kind of go out there. So that's, that's again, how I, w- I would write down everything to show, justify uh, what I was doing. I mean, the way I tell officers is, I want you to imagine, like, say it's just an, a, a DUI arrest. I said, I want you to, if you want to know how to write a report, imagine that right now, as soon as you get done, your boss uh, just says, you idiot, you just arrested an innocent person. Like, no, because they told me this, they didn't deny it, they admitted they were, don't just put in there the red bloodshot eyes and everything, but put everything that would say, because all of that stuff becomes relevant on uh, your probable cause. A defense attorney is going to say he's got red red bloodshot eyes because he's crying because he just lost his his favorite dog. Yeah. Aller- allergies are going off, you yeah. know, and and uh, incontinence. I mean, I don't understand. I don't look. I've well, had, I asked about that. He can tell you about yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I have no recollection of that one. Yeah. <laughs> As he's, <laughs> let's not even go. Hey, well, let's let's kind of let's move this uh, ex- exciting conversation forward then, because you're out in the field now. Again, you're working narcotics. You're working for the Bureau of Narcotics uh, Enforcement, right? Uh, what, yes. what do they call it yes. again? What's it called? Or, or, the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics. OBN, right? OBN. So mm-hmm. OB, well, and if you put uh, the color gray in there, you would be OBGYN. But anyway, different story. <laughs> anyway. Um, That's why I had to be a cop. <laughs> That's right. He's yeah. not a comedian. <laughs> and I'm not Todd McComas, one of our other episodes either. <laughs> yeah. So you're with OBN. Now, you're working drug cases. So now, how do you get involved in a kidnapping case? Let, let's talk about this case, too, because sure. this, was, this was very interesting because there's a link that goes with it, uh, a story. So let's set the context for this. What, what was going on that got you involved with this? So um, we had, uh, the, the Bureau has, uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, databases, uh, a lot of uh, unmarked car special operators. So we typically uh, have someone assigned to the U.S. Marshals uh, Fugitive Task Force, the one in Oklahoma City. Uh, there's actually three in the state. Um, and so I was kind of assigned to them 
uh, part-time, not a full-time gig, but part-time. And uh, it was just a great networking thing. There's guys from other departments on there. It's a task force. Uh, you kind of, again, there's uh, sometimes they could, th- th- we'd be on a, a, a murder suspect. We may have information in our prescription databases, help tracks down baby mama, whatever it might be. I mean, it was just a, a great and a good group of guys. And so uh, we would sometimes go out and again, if we had a, uh, a roundup with a bunch of uh, violent uh, uh, targets, the marshal service would go out there and it was just a, it was a great crew and a lot of good friends on there. So I'm on this thing part time and it's a Sunday afternoon. And I first learned about it on the media. We had a, uh, a group me that we did on, on text message, but the, there's been a, uh, an eight-year-old girl is just kidnapped off a playground in broad daylight. I mean, a guy just runs out of his car, uh, it's at an uh, apartment complex. And where's this out again? Uh, in Tulsa, in Tulsa. And uh, the guy just runs from a car, out of a car, and, uh, and just, I mean, grabs her, jumps in the car, and takes off. She's eight years old. And it's one of those horrible things you kind of hear about. I think she was, she might've been the oldest child. There was right outside the apartment of the parents. There's a a apartment playground and didn't get much of a description from the other children there, but someone saw a car speeding away. There was a description. I think they may have said a male. I'm not even sure if we, I don't think we even had a race at the time. And that's like uh, late afternoon. It's in, it's in April. And so I see that on the news and then kind of we start the, the, the group me starts going off like, hey, we're going to meet down at the, the we had a name for the, the station we called Little House. We're all going to meet down at Little House, which is a smaller office, and we're going to start going out there. They're mobilizing everybody they can uh, to do that. And at this time, we've got nothing. I mean, we have a car description, and that's it. So we're going to do something. So we basically go and do a uh, knock and talk, which is, you know, knock, w- walking up and knocking on the door, talking to every registered sex offender in Tulsa County. And just to say, what kind of car do you have? Look in a garage. And can we look for the girl? They're all very, oh, yeah, they want to show absolutely I don't have this girl kidnapped here. That's all we could do. And um, earlier in the day, and again, this there are a lot of really, I, I just think, exceptional people, heroes. Um, a good friend of Wayne who just uh, stuck his head in here. So earlier in the day, in Tulsa, a, a a guy seemed like he was high on drugs, bought some coloring books at a discount store, and they saw on his license he was a sex offender. And so they so called... Wait a so on the driver's reverse. license in Oklahoma, you have a designation as being a registered sex offender? Yes. Wow. And so they had seen that, and he, cause he tried to pay for it with in, a check, is it and they a, saw... His, is it in the shape of a target or anything? You know what's funny? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't do traffic. I don't know what it looks like. I've never looked at a freaking pervert's license. I know it has. I'm not even sure what it. It's probably like under 21 type thing. Hey, Murph, show them yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dog. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that happened earlier in the day. I mean, and and she just felt weird. So this 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 worker called a and i don't think we I, to this day i don't think the, the dispatch took the call they don't even know what store it was uh but colin just said this was kind of weird i want to let you know about this and it was it was in a suburb from t- about probably 30 miles away an entire another county outside of uh, tulsa county uh, and it was in the it was in the uh, the department where wayne uh Stinnett was a detective uh-huh. so wayne was not assigned to the to the marshals uh but another detective at claremore this claremore uh is where the call came in was so that's just it. Well, 
the dispatcher took real good notes on it and actually notified uh, the uh, the officer, like, hey, we just had a call about uh, this guy. I'm not going to say there's a guy in this. And I, I, I know I know you guys don't say uh, names to give them value. So the piece of shit, uh, who's, we'll okay. get to that. Uh, and he's known to them. He's got a, 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 a pretty violent rape that happened years ago. And so uh, we're just doing uh, out looking and Wayne uh, was with his kids out of town at a, I think some kind of a ball game tournament gets back in town, wasn't assigned, but knew some people out there and said, look, little girl's been kidnapped. I remember calling me said, what can I do? And so they said, you know, if before you come out here, do you mind stopping off at piece of shit's house? They know where he lived. Just see if he's there. And, and so Talked to his mama, who's a total enabler. Haven't seen him since this morning. And, uh, so he's and still living at home with mom? Yeah. How old is uh-huh. this guy now? I would say 32, 33, around there. Early early to mid-30s. And thanks to Al Gore's amazing internet, I pull, pulled up an image of the Oklahoma DL, and it puts sex offender in red letters at the bottom of their picture. Then there's like a smaller picture with sex offender over their face. Okay, well, there you go. Pretty obvious, you're a sex offender. Actually, it's got the Kansas one, too, below Kansas, where it says on the ID, it says registered offender. Um, I have to check my driver's license. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, so uh, Wayne's out there. He tracks down Mama. And and I'll tell you, one of those guys I've talked about that are just a tremendous, if it was my deal, I cared about it, I would put Wayne on an interview all day long. And Wayne's, again, going in soft and, and, where's pos at and i don't know and like what's he drive bam it's whatever it was like a silver camry it's like he drives a silver camry like okay what's his phone and it's turned off and we're like all right at least that's the best i mean that's the best we had to go on and this it's way after it's probably 11 it may be after midnight uh this it's it's dark and so essentially uh, Wayne just sits, <clears throat> he just sits with her in case he comes home or to make sure mama doesn't call him on her. We don't think she's telling us his real number actually, cause we don't know what his number is. So, uh, we're at least kind of, uh, looking at, and that's at least kind of where a suspect is. Well, on the other side, I mean, probably 45 minutes away on the other side in a whole nother County, uh, it's, it's in a Sunday night. Now it's probably like one in the morning. Uh, there's a deputy that gets called because there's this guy seems high on drugs that he's at like a Whataburger, some fast food place that was open. And the officer goes up there to talk to him and, uh, is going to arrest him for public intox. And he gets in his car. They get in a, they get in a struggle. He takes off and, uh, I mean, and starts dragging the officer and he can see he's about to hit a gas meter. And so he has to, uh, unask the car with the door open, fighting the guy and is, and gets, thrown in the street and skinned up really good but he can identify that i don't know if he had the tag but he could say okay this this is piece of shit we've kind of are not sure we had we had not pushed it out to the media yet but uh he says that so we now we all converge and go uh and go over to this uh town it's a pulpa which is on the west side and another county it's a, a suburb of tulsa and it's a and I guess it's about one in the morning. It's a, a town of about 25, 30,000. And essentially, uh, when I, I was actually on the west side, and I, besides the Sepulveda officers, I was one of the, I think I was the first one of our crew to get there because I just was checking hotels for that car on the west side. 
of Tulsa and I got there pretty quick. In fact, he, the ambulance is still, he has really got a bunch of road rations and cuts on his head and uh he need, they want to transport him but he refuses because the little girl's out there still and if, if you know a thing about these stranger abductions there's a there's an over under we're past it it's like about they're almost always killed within like you want to find them within i want to say it's four or five hours we were beyond it because after that the num the the likelihood of them being killed just goes up because these these predators when they do this they they you know they kill them so it is a the high intensity uh thing we're all we're all chasing this well we kind of get there the 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 guy that that ran the marshal service the commander we're, we're kind of looking at uh just and, and by this time i mean everybody's there it's just like i mean the town's dead except for about uh a ton of unmarked cars i mean just everyone look like bees buzzing kind of going everywhere and we're trying to figure out by the timing how far could he be call the highway patrol. we're looking at the highways that go out now he's still in his vehicle right or is he on foot yes yeah so okay. no he's on his vehicle so the 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 uh the deputy that uh contacted him kind of just walking up to this uh uh where he was in this in this fast food parking lot uh and just contacting him outside uh didn't i don't think he knew who he was it, I mean, because he's just walking up and uh and and he had driven all got in his car they get in a fight and he puts it in gear i think it was maybe running and then it just ends up throwing him so we're trying to figure that out and um i'm like i had to do something so i'm driving around well i see these people standing at a uh like a convenience store you know <laughs> like one in the morning and i just stopped and i had i had a, another guy uh an agent named dawson kane he just transferred to tulsa he did not know the tulsa streets he's in his car with me or he's in my car because uh, he said look I'll, i want to go out he wasn't on the but he heard about it and he just said i'll go and he jumped in my car and so uh we pull over and i'm like hey do you guys see like a car and then he just kind of get a we do one direction but in, anything they know and he said yeah about 20 minutes ago he wasn't at the convenience store he said uh, I, I saw this car with this lights off and he describes car like whatever the description kind of hauling ass and it took a right on this and he starts telling me these streets in sepulpa i don't know and I just said, okay, can you, hey, can you, do you mind if, if I if I load up my car, show me where that is? And so he goes, yeah. So he, he gets in my car, we drive a few blocks and he tells me where the guy, uh, this car with his lights off was speeding, just turned off. Well, uh, at that time I had like a GPS, like a Garmin of my dash and I could, it's on the, it's on the very west edge of uh of town and it was it was a, a neighborhood uh probably a whole division with about four or five streets but all of them looped back to this main road and i'm like okay i don't know i'm not sure why uh i didn't have lights on my car but i think i thought okay i got on the radio i said guys i i think he might be here i'm not so sure he might be still here and so some other buddies of mine the, the detective from claremore and another good friend of mine uh named James Williard, who was a prior officer there. They come up one street over and turn the lights on and tell the helicopter, they, we got Tulsa's helicopter, just said, uh, hey, we've got a last known direction of travel here, but he went in this He went in this neighborhood. And so I've got the guy standing out, we're talking, and we, basically we've got people at all four, at all the all the exits out. And, and there's one at the very end where uh, a marked unit is for Tulsa PD with a canine that was signed. And the hel the helicopter's looking for with a fleer looking for the 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 heat signature of of the car. They're looking for that. And after a like, gosh, a few. I mean, it wasn't very long, but that helicopter gets there uh, a minute or two. Then all of a sudden, right 
uh, south of me, two or three sheets down, I see this car go out with its lights off, with uh, uh, the same sedan with its lights off. And I, and, and I said to the, guy, to the guy, I said, is that the car? And he said, that's it. Well, right then, Clint, uh, the guy, Clint, who was the, the canine, actually the, was the chief Jordan's son, Tulsa was the chief son. He goes on the radio and says, I'm behind him. We're, I'm in pursuit. And, uh, and so, uh, we just all get in that deal. I, I leave the guy there. I'm like, sorry, dude, I'm going. And I just left this guy in the middle of, you know, there. And, and, uh, and it, it looks like, I mean, it's like the OJ car chase. I mean, it's you know, 40, 50, I mean, every media, news media all over Tulsa is there. And we get in this pursuit on this guy. And, and, and look, this, it, it's a very, this story, it's real, uh, I mean, it's impactful to me, but I just, there's some funny anecdotes. So Dawson Kane, he's the agent that's, uh, he's, he's with me and he's played football in college. And, and again, <laughs> we've been after this guy. We're trying to save this little girl, and because we're thinking, okay, that what's going to happen, and we've been looking for him, and we've gotten closer, and now we're in pursuit. And I, this one, I look, I'm gonna look over. I'm like, okay, first of all, he just fought the officers. We may get in a freaking shootout. He, I was like, Dawson, I'm gonna say, why don't you, hey, call David as our supervisor. Call David and tell him we're about to get in. It may get sticky. He may need to come out here when there's fixing to be a use of force because it's, I don't think it's going to end well. I look over to Dawson. He's got his rifle between his legs, muzzle pointing up, and he's he's in this amped up bouncing, and and he and he starts the shit talking. You know, he's like, "Oh motherfucker, we got you now, motherfucker, we got you." You know, and he's just, you know, just exactly who you want. If, if uh, you know, and I always say, "Was that him or the dog?" No, no, that was <laughs> that was Dawson. He was amped up, and I mean, he can't sit still. It looks like you know, like uh, like the tunnel in the pregame, the strength coach holding the guy back. I mean, he is just like bouncing up, and he's 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 think he's not talking to him. He's thinking out loud, talking to the guy like. I mean, and, and it's it, it was I mean, an intense deal. Getting exactly the energy you want. Again, if your daughter's kidnapped, oh, that's absolutely. Out there. absolutely. So we go. So we this pursuit goes on for a while. I, I don't. We're behind. I can't. I can't remember. Remember if they did stop sticks, but he gets shut down. Won't get out of the car. We got guys up there. Got to pull him out. And then she's not in the back. We open the trunk, and I mean, I'm, there's like three or four of us there, and I just remember you're like you your know, heart's already going into your stomach. You're, uh, you know, just, what yeah. are you going to see yeah. when you open the trunk? <laughs> and we open it up, and she's not there. And uh, and the guy, the officer that that fought him, is all bandaged up. The wouldn't she was to go to the hospital? Somehow, I can't remember. He said like that blanket. We knew he'd been in the trunk because there was stuff in the in the seat, back seat that wasn't there. So he'd kind of been in the trunk. So we just break off back and just go uh, uh, because he obviously she wasn't uh, there. Now we know later in, uh, that she was actually in the trunk uh, the entire time uh, when when the when the when the first thing happened with the uh, the deputy fighting him and driving down the road. So everybody breaks up. Hey, and before just kinda, you move on to that, did, did mm -hmm. ask? Let, just, just tell me. Give me a goodness. Did they, did they put the dog on him to get him out of the car? Did the dog get a chance to to bite down? No, he. Um, Darn. There were. Uh, I mean, I think we had dogs out, but he he wouldn't he, he wouldn't uh, uh, get out of the car. I think I don't remember if they busted the window. Or if, uh, if it, well, he didn't roll it down. He wouldn't get out of the car when he, when he was not compliant. And so, uh, the first guys that were there, basically they, they, they assist him out of the pass, out of the driver window. And so, uh, there were dogs there barking, but it wasn't, he didn't take off. So, uh, yeah, he didn't get bit.
very nice way to describe that. They yeah. assisted him through the driver's window. We, yeah. Yeah, he, he was non-compliant. Yeah, we assisted him out of the <laughs> yeah, vehicle. He did. And and again, uh, the window. I don't. The window wasn't there. I don't. I doubt it was down. I think he it probably assisted in opening the window too. Uh, and so, because um, I, I remember seeing him go out of the driver window. So we just break off, and we just everyone just. I mean, 40, 50 guys and a Sepulpa officer found her at a tree line uh, back in that, that neighborhood was on the edge of town. And so that's, where, that's why we knew it'd be tough to get out of. And she's stuffed in a sleeping bag and her underwear is tied around her neck. Uh, but she's alive. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I don't know how close it was when the helicopter got there, but I mean, he, he had taken her underwear was uh, had tied around her neck. And obviously... Uh, she he he had her for several hours. Had done unspeakable, horrible uh, things to her. This little eight year old girl. Oh man! So um, he goes uh, and, and so. But why this is so that again that was to me one of the most. Uh, I mean the, the stakes were of all the stuff you get amped up and I'm I've you know we've been to things where you're just waiting for the gunshots to go off and but that is it had a different feel because it was just kind of uh, I mean just the all night long doing this and trying to get this and, and there's where this happened we found her name is monzi uh which i n- normally wouldn't name victims names but she's exceptional which i'll kind of uh get to at the end of the story so uh this guy he's a repeat offender um he tries to change his appearance he uh, uh grows a beard dyed his hair fought the j- jailers going to court uh the and in front of the jury the guy uh j- went took a water pitcher and hit the female prosecutor in the face knocked her teeth out oh geez. Uh, i mean just kind of i mean and again just hoping that she wouldn't identify him uh you know and doing this kind of things and she went up there and uh and uh uh she testified uh described what he did to her how old was she at out. the time eight eight years old and, and, of course, he ended up getting 120 years in prison. And uh, so, the uh, Murph, the year you came and spoke uh, at our conference, uh, I wish we could have done this at the same time because of COVID, we couldn't. But every year, our association, well, I say every year, the, the president of the association, if there, it's not one we do every year, but if we see exceptional valor, if there's one of those things that we see, then, uh, then we... Uh, uh, we, we all kind of recognize that. And, and there's a lot. And I'll tell you that story. There is a lot of, I think, that I saw so many friends. Again, Wayne going out there and doing that interview. He Wayne wasn't even assigned with there. He, he gets back in town, calls in, a, in a, at another jurisdiction outside of Tulsa County. How can I help? He does an interview, puts us on a suspect. I mean, all so many people, what that citizen did, who we still don't know, the dispatcher documenting that, sending and it out. And you're talking about the citizen. You're talking about the one that called in the coloring yes. book thing? At the, at the at the discount store, yeah. Who knew something so small and insignificant like that would play a huge part? And and did that before the, they knew there was anything. not the kidnapping. Yeah, just said, this is just kind of uh, a guy's high buying a coloring book. I just, I don't like that. And so, uh, and so th- there were so many people that did that. And I, I mean, I don't know how close, uh, uh, Monzi, her name is Montserrat, but she goes by Monzi. I don't know how close it was, but, uh, it was exceptional. However, all those people, I mean, we sign up for that. I mean, it's, it makes your life kind of, uh, but makes your, 
you know, your career in life uh, kind of feel worth it. But that Mozzie didn't sign up for this at all. And so that year we, uh, we recognized her as, as an exceptional value of what she done. Because since that time, she's written a book uh that to help victims about uh what what's like to go through trauma there's a youtube reading of it she, that, when we gave her the award she met with uh, a reporter that covered it that night and talked about what it was like uh wants to be a prosecutor someday and so to me that is it, it her courage and and how you know she could impact all those guys there, there are still officers that that go to see her family go out to lunch with her a lot of guys uh they they are still in contact with her and so uh, and and you know to, to circle back to to one of the things we've talked about is the morale in, in law enforcement like i mean if you're rational and your cops like what do i do this i mean that all the crap with politicians and social media and all these uh influencers what they're saying why do it and the reality we know all of us know in public safety is there are in every community there are people that are, they'd rape and molest every every person they could steal everything they can and the only thing that stops them is the threat of getting caught in punishment. They do not understand morality like we do. So if if you want to say why, uh, uh, when I'm ever kind of speaking, talking about the morale, like why, you, you should ask the question, why am I doing this? That's why. I mean, th- those kind of people, I mean, it, it sucks for us and it's hard, uh, but if those, like like that little girl, they they need us. And that's why this this cause is so important. Uh, I think that's again with with the imaging. I mean, with the uh, the messaging that uh, we see. And, and I'll tell you guys, I'm not trying to. Just, I mean, not just to kind of blow up your skirt. What you guys are doing right now serves that mission. I mean, I I think we are in a we're in a a, a, a information war, and we kind of got our ass kicked a little bit. And I think what you guys do to get that out helps us kind of move that forward and, and, and makes our community safer. So we, we look, we really need quality law enforcement, that next generation. Uh, it's very hard to recruit. It's hard to keep guys there, but they need us. I mean, that if it's not us, who's going to be? So Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for saying that. It's, it's amazing some of the comments we've got back from some of our listeners now for the past year and a half about the realization that law enforcement are really people. You know, they're moms and dads and their husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and, and all that goes along with that. And and that's why we bring people in to tell the heroic stories and the rescues that go on out there, the bravery, the expertise, the commitment to duty, the honor, the sacrifice, how uh, not only does it affect the law enforcement professionals, but their families, you know, because it's, I mean, it becomes a way of life if you're doing your job correctly. And I do want to, normally we don't acknowledge uh, the pieces of shit that you refer to, but this is public record, and this piece of shit's name is Michael Slatton. He's doing 120 years in prison, and I hope he enjoys having done to him what he did to that young girl. I hope that happens to him every day while he's in prison. I well, hope they'll he never keep gets him out. segregated. They'll keep him from having the ride on the old Hershey Highway, as they say. Uh, but I'll tell you what, but Murphy, you sold this guy short. This piece of shit got 120 years plus another 40 he got another 40 for throwing excrement at sheriff's deputies, assaulting detention officers, and then attacking that prosecutor. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually forgot. Those, yeah, he caught charges. So yeah, the 120 was what he what he had done to Monzi. And, Unbelievable. Uh, 
And so, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's other charges, yeah, fighting the jailers and attacking. So. Well, listen to this. You talk about trying to excuse his way out of it. The court heard Slatton apologize to the victim family, but he still claimed he was blacked out on pills given to him by a friend when the incident took place and he could not remember anything. Well, that's yeah. how so, when he and, sits down and it hurts, it remembers yeah. every time. And, you know, that's one of those things that, that if you look at w uh, the, the thing with so many offenders. Now, again, this is all day long, horrendous sex crimes. But predatory offenders oftentimes inflate their courage to, to do these. I say courage, their uh, their willingness <laughs> to do these crimes by uh, by drugs. That they are, they are so so. That drugs are not uh, irrelevant now. Again, he's immoral piece of shit that should right. rot in hell and and will. But but those uh, the 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 you know he was it removes that final barrier to him committing that crime. What it does, it lowers his inhibitions and allows him to do it. It, it assists him in in doing what he he they can maintain restraint not to do it because of getting caught. But when they when they when they actually can get high, then then uh, then that. Uh, again, remember he was the two things where he was he looked like he was on pills when he was uh, high when he was buying a coloring book and when he was at that at that uh, uh, fast food place uh, later on in the, in the evening. And you're right, it 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 lowers their restraint to where they can do what they have the desire to do, but that will never go down as as a drug offense. And it's as as heroic as as you guys law enforcement actions were the the true hero. Uh, is Monzi and it, and it's this is online. You can look it up. You can see the interview. Now keep in mind she was kidnapped at eight. Nine months later, so I'm assuming she was nine. Confronted her attacker in court. This piece of crap. So that's a heroic girl, and has taken her story and made something out of it, so she can help others. You want a lesson to learn? You want somebody to look up to? Look up to this young lady. Was she 14 years old now? Uh, it's just how does a nine year old? Where does a nine year old get that internally to be able to do that? You know, wow. it just. Well, and 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 if you watch the online uh, the interview when he gave her the award, uh, she the 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 uh, the crime reporter who covered it that night is now an anchor. Actually, went back and, and did a feature story and said, "Is it you know? Can I talk to you?" And she said, uh, "I mean, she said you can put my name out there." And she did an interview on camera, and she's an exceptional. She is so bright. And, uh, and so that's, uh, uh, again, with, with she's impacted so many people. And again, it shows us, uh, it, it can remind us kind of, you know, why we do this. And she is, uh, uh, I mean, again, I, I love my, I love my profession. I love the men and women, uh, in law enforcement and public safety, but, uh, it's hard to get inspired more with all the, all the people I work with than, uh, Monzi and what happened to her, what she's shown and what she continues to show. For our listeners, go check out her video. She, I mean, this is the news article. It's, uh, I think you could type in teen at center of Tulsa Amber Alert and find it on Google. Yeah, and we'll put the link We'll put the link on our show page. The other thing, though, too, is I don't want to get biblical here, but it's, it's kind of like you, you talk about why do we do this. Cops live for this kind of stuff, the ones that do it. It's like Isaiah 6, 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then, he's, then I said, here I am, send Absolutely. me. How many cops that night raised their hand and said, here I am, send me? Guys and girls, we're going. Not even my jurisdiction, not my problem. I work dope cases, but yet when stuff like this happens... Everybody raises their hand and they go, I will go send How many me. of them? Every one of them. Every one of them. Yeah. Every one of them. 
And nobody stopped to ask what race she was. Nobody stopped to ask what her social status was. Nobody stopped to ask if she went to the right schools. Nobody stopped to ask, you know, et cetera. You know, and what's funny is that is relevant to all these people in pop culture that could not be more irrelevant to people in public safety. Don't happen, but a lot of times don't know, don't ask, don't care. And right. it, it's amazing to me there. So the minute you say eight year old girl kidnapped broad daylight, everybody goes, it's like, you don't, what other, what other information do yeah. you need? Let's saddle up and let's go. Yeah. Well, like Dawson, Dawson wasn't assigned to the, he was a, a narc in Tulsa and he heard about it. And he says, I want to go because I don't know Tulsa streets. Can I go with you? And, and you know what? That helped because we were going to go, we weren't going to do consent encounters with just one person. So I could double up. I got a partner and I was, I had the radio and I could go out there. And that, that's what they, that's, that's just what everybody does. It's, it's not, I mean, we see it all the time, but when you sit back and reflect on it, uh, and it's because of, of, uh, you know, those peace officers and they, look they've been a, we've been a, peace officers and people holding the peace internally against evil been around for thousands of years that's just kind of our calling now and we've seen you you know you lay off that and 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 really it look who really look it, it sucks for the profession for us professionally right now off look officer violence well i think it increased what 29 percent last year that's on the rise and that's horrible but the real casualties of this are the innocent it's people that can't protect themselves. That's who needs this. That's why it's so important. And I, and I again, I just appreciate your, your messaging because that's kind of the uh, the threat besides criminal justice reform uh, and and how that's uh, really tearing uh, our society where we could lose our country. The messaging is a very uh, uh, important part of that. And so that's why, well, again, why I think what you guys do is is tremendous to uh, get that information and that out there. Thanks for saying. See, that. Murphy says me making fun of you is important to this country. <laughs> yeah, if we could just get you to listen, you know, quit interrupting everybody. Damn. Hey, look! Look how long I can go back. I will go back and tell you the long stretches of where he went on. Let me let, let me read you something though. This is very interesting because I'm working on a two uh, two books, but I'm reading this thing. It's called Thrillers: The Hundred Must Reads. So there's a hundred different chapters, and it's written by all of these authors, and they go back and they start from very early on, like uh, Beowulf and the Minotaur. And they work their way up through current um, uh, books. But there is one, there is one phrase I want to read, and it stuck out to me. I was just reading it this morning, and it comes, it comes from the guy who was talking about Beowulf, and we start talking about evil. The evils of this sad world are not always susceptible to analysis or negotiation. Some monsters are really monsters and just have to be taken down. That's why poets write or used to write epics honoring the warriors who do the job. There is no explain. There's you don't need to explain or rationalize this guy. He is evil simply because he's evil. And there are and people the the sooner people realize there are people like this in the world that there is no hand holding or um, rationalizing or coddling that's going to make these guys productive members of society. These people are evil. And if you don't have the law enforcement out there, I know Los Angeles just said, "Hey, the thin blue line is racist." Couldn't be farther from the truth. They don't like flying it there. Without that thin blue line, and it comes from the thin red line, what they talked about in World War One, you know, holding the line. If without that thin blue line that separates order from chaos, what are we going to do then? Who, who does it fall upon then to provide order and, and keep, to your point, 
a lot. There's a lot of good people out there, but we also know that there's a small group of people out there, except for the fact that they get arrested or the threat of arrest or the law enforcement is there, they would commit these acts. It's, it is that thin blue line. And when you remove it, you get Portland, you get Seattle, you get all, Atlanta, you get places like that. Right. And, 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 and again, the biggest victims are these communities and uh, groups that they are purporting to protect. And it's, it's just, uh, it's just kind of a, it's just a tragedy. It's and, lawlessness. Uh, lawlessness. It absolutely is. So. And it's, it's, again, nothing new. Well, but excellent job on that recovery. Following through, persevering, you know, putting somebody else first. That's what law enforcement does. Well, I mean, there's, I don't think that there's any way to top that. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, but I will tell you, the, and I will tell you this, too, and, and you'll appreciate this, too, Brian, the biggest difference between being a prosecuting attorney and, and hand taking these cases through court, which is obviously important, right? But it's just, to your point, it's the, people don't want to admit, but it is. It's like the guy you talked about, Dawson. It's the thrill of this hunt. It's like, I am, uh, I'm, let's go do this. It's like actually being there and making that difference in the field for those folks. There's no other feeling like it. There's no other adrenaline rush like that. When you when you bring the bad guy or bad girl in, when you recover the child, there's no amount of paperwork or stuff later that can give you that feeling from when you're out there and you made, you know, you made an impact in somebody's life. Well, and, and I'll tell you one of the ways, there's an easy way. It's not about just the the thrill, thrill of heroism. Or it's, it's nothing like, it's like oh, I equate it to, uh, you know, winning a championship because and here's a good way to tell here's a way to tell if you if you truly bleed public safety if you hear like with you guys and i'm telling the story and i can see it on video the story is pissing you off and then uh and so think about this if, if you hear about a case in california of some asshole victimizing people and he gets acquitted if that infuriates you and in your case you don't that tells you what drives you and uh, and if you hear that a bad guy got it and you're like man that, that absolutely that you can see that and so that's so it's not about it, it look it, it's absolutely about being part of the cause but it's not about it's not about your own it's, it's not about what you do and so it, it's just kind of joining in to say that's what i'm about and that that's what you know we're, i mean really i say lucky hell i'm blessed i mean you don't get much time on this earth and the fact I get to work in public safety with, I mean, look, they're the, and, and I'll tell you this, Murph, of all the people, is, is there a bunch of ribbon and joking and hazing in law enforcement? Yes. DEA may be the best at it. I mean, they, they, they are some of. That's about the only thing they're good at. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'll tell you, I, the, that group and whether, and, and I've been lucky enough to like, like Murph, you go around and it's not just people around here. You go to other uh, states and, uh, and, and teach and, and, and meet those people we're all the same it is we don't go to the same academy schools different parts of the country it doesn't matter what this what the socio-economic or political landscape is i mean we get people people from uh northern california san francisco get those cut they are exactly like a it, it is just some warrior class calling that people have and uh and i think it's just it's just crucial to our uh civilization and, and protection of everybody in the order that we have and it's true in other countries. We bring on guests from other countries, and and uh, it's the same there. They they just want to help people. You know, it's as simple as that. It's it's not all this rhetoric that's going on now. There's no, there's nothing self serving about it. You just want to help others. Well, let's let's now kind of bring this full circle because um, 
let's talk about what you're doing now. So you were an agent for how long? Um, eight and a half years. So you did eight years uh, prosecuting attorney, eight years as an agent. What made you then make the jump back to what you're doing now? What 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 was the again the tipping point for you? Well, I've had I've had two jumps since then. So um, uh, in 2014, my uh, uh, well, and I say my boss, my former boss, uh, he won an election as uh, uh, district attorney in uh, in Wayne's. Uh, district in that area, three counties that uh, border a, sub- a suburban Tulsa. He asked me to become be his first assistant. I wasn't looking to leave being an agent. Uh, it was just kind of a, the, that DA was very adverse to law enforcement. And I knew the people up there and worked a lot of cases up there. And he asked me to kind of come back and, and be his first assistant and uh, and do that. So work some of the interdiction cases uh, or prosecute the interdiction cases, forfeitures, because we had a uh, inter, uh interstate that went through there as well so i went did that for seven years and then just about a year exactly a year ago uh the the current director of the oakland beer and narcotics uh donnie anderson he was not there when i left Uh, he was appointed director asked me to come back uh and so now i'm at the the deputy director at uh back of the bureau so uh i have i am uh and i kept my law enforcement credentials active the whole time i was assistant da i was you know in in case the shit hit the fan i was not going to be the nerd prosecutor and a windbreaker you know and uh and it's amazing how i'll tell you so you know i'm i've been with these guys on the marshall squad i went to the rifle and swat schools with them and i go back to you know some like the one one of the guys in the car james williard he was a a, a, in prior as a detective and i go to visit him and that's one of the offices and i he's got some you know short barrel you know suppressed rifle in his office with a nice optic what does anybody do freaking play with it and i pick it up he's oh whoa 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 that's warden you know that's loaded brian i'm like bitch i've been to the same Carving school. Well, you're a prosecutor now. I'm like, are you? Because I wear a tie, I can't hold. Are you kidding me? And then it's like, you know, I remember the first week I'm back in court, and, it's, and I, we got to cover dockets, and someone's gone, and I, there's a juvenile, like a 14 year old uh, juvenile, and they're like, we need a deputy in here because you know we're gonna we're gonna have a de- a, a delinquent in here. I'm like, are you shit? I've been with the marshals, and now I can't even be in a courtroom with a freaking 14 year old kid, and so. <laughs> I kept my law enforcement credentials, but so I'm back to having, uh, you know, uh, an official gun and badge and, and back in the, and, and classified as an agent. But of course now I've got a lot more administrative things that happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when I go out there on deals, I feel alive, but that's, uh, I've got to struggle to do that every day. So are you still a, uh, a special assistant U S attorney? No. So that was a gig I had when I was in the DA's office. I was a cross advertised special, uh, SASA is which is special, uh, assistant United States attorney. And I got to know a lot of the people there in, in the U S attorney's office in Tulsa. I have a lot of getting just made good connections, but, uh, that, 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 that was, uh, an appointment I had with my roles as a, uh, assistant DA. Yeah. And for our listeners, that means that he could prosecute cases in federal court as well as state court. Right. To get that cross designation. And get to cross examine himself. Your Honor, I call <laughs> yeah, myself. <that's> right. <laughs> no, I would <laughs> say no further questions. That was a brilliant direct if it was me. Now, now you've written, uh, you, you've been involved in quite a bit of writing, and, and you keep mentioning the Fourth Amendment here, which is phenomenal. But there's one book that you wrote that uh, made the number one bestseller list, isn't it? Uh, yes. It and was. I may, Morgan mentioned it earlier, but can you tell us about it again? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I've got a book. It's, it's uh, uh, Injustice for All the Familiar Fallacies of Criminal Justice Reform. And if you 
if the listeners hasn't picked up, I'm not a fan of criminal justice reform. And so uh, what happened is, is I, so I, I made a run through the leadership of our... Well, wait a minute. You can't just say that. I mean, you, as you're saying that, you got to say why. You say you're not a big fan of criminal justice reform. Make sure you answer okay. the why I, in this. I, I will. So, um, and, and so... We had when I went through the, through the uh, leadership of the uh, of our state narcotics association, where you know Wayne is just a past president. Well, I, I held a SWAT meeting for our board members in terms of like you know the training, what we're going to do, and and uh, going forward and growth of the agency or the growth of the association. And uh, one of the biggest challenges, threats we had was the narratives uh, against law enforcement and public safety. And that's really kind of when these reform movements were kind of gaining, gaining steam and you, whether it's like billionaires giving money to causes and these offshoots of NGOs, just, just dealing with all of that. And a little bit from the, like the, the traditional libertarians that are kind of like legalizing drugs, they, they kind of, it's a weird kind of an odd marriage. So, um, so I, obviously I'm going with our association, kind of going to legislatures, pending laws and, and dealing with some, some of those, uh, those things. And you see all of the bullshit in terms of the, w- what these people are doing. So uh, I've kind of been seeing that, dealing with that for a year or two with the association. So my wife and I go on vacation and, you know, don't get to read. I read enough as a lawyer uh, that reading recreationally just doesn't sound that fun because I do it all day. So she and I go uh, on an anniversary trip, just like a, a cabin we go to a, a every year. And uh, I've always kind of been, I, I love the the libertarian eco- economic thought with uh, whether it's, you know, just kind of my geek out thing. And, and one of the guys is, is uh, a guy named Frederick Hayek. And he wrote a book that uh, I, I read, read about and people mentioned it. So I, I found that at the bookstore, bought it. I'm going to read that. Well, his whole book, it's, it's called The Road to Serfdom. But essentially, it was it, post-World War II, it was, it was basically what he called the apparatus, intellectual left, uh, the media, and the entertainment industry. Uh, they were pushing a narrative that Nazi was failed capitalism, how they pushed that on on America and the plan of doing this and how if we continue this, we're going to be in serfdom. And I'm like, well, and so I'm like, that's interesting. So I, uh, I, I read this and I'm like, every single playbook they have for pushing these ridiculous narratives, redefining words, per- per- perpetuating a myth, um, uh, all the things go through there, the use of propaganda. Uh, I, I, I read that, and I'm like, holy hell, this is exactly what they're saying at legislative and with the media to, to push these false narratives on criminal justice reform. So that night, I was, we're making margarita, you know, I just, and I just, I told my wife, who's a former prosecutor, I said, hey, this, it's exactly the same damn thing that I'm seeing. It, I mean, Hike wrote this book in the 40s. It's exactly the same way. She's like, why don't you write a book? I'm like, you know what? I will. So the next morning I got up, just I started outlining it, did that. And, uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, essentially tried to, and again, I don't want to just kind of be my, my thoughts on the world. Uh, I've, I've got about 300 sources. I mean, the, the data in history is, is, is on, uh, the side of showing the importance of enforcement. And so, uh, so anyway, I just, uh, uh, wrote the book and, uh, you know, released it. Um, I, I wanted to get it done at the end of 2020. Uh, I got the final manuscript in to the copy editor, uh, like on the 30th, actually. And so my wife, I made a margarita with her again, just kind of, it's a capstone that off after like uh, 14 months and, uh, released it, uh, in March. And then it just, yeah, on Amazon went to the number one bestseller. And it's been, uh, again, it's, uh, uh, and again, you, you went through some of the chapters, uh, 
there's a lot of, I mean, again, I, I wanted to start from scratch. If you're going to make the case for enforcement and for drug enforcement, you kind of have to start with why do we even have laws? What society? Back to cavemen and rules. And, and, and that's kind of the history of thought, which is a couple of chapters, which a lot of knuckle draggers aren't kind of into. Getting about chapter four, that's where it kind of gets into, into our universe and, and kind of what we've seen. So, uh, you know, and again, I won't say that I knew everything in there. I mean, I, I've been around long enough. I know this, you know, keep, you know, you see these politicians, they're like, oh, we need, he doesn't need jail. He needs rehab. Rehab works. Well, we know that's BS. So, I mean, these guys are in and out of rehab. What is that? Well, you look and, and uh, you know, there's, there's no def, you look at this, there's no definition of rehab. Is it talking to your cat? Well, no one knows. And so, and, and works is like part of the propaganda. You, what does work mean? Well, it, they get to define it. Is it if you start treatment, start and finish, start and finish and, uh, and do aftercare, start, finish, do aftercare, don't get arrested in three years. And we see with that DOJ study, there's just no, we have no idea how, how much, uh, what rehab is or how often it works. Right. So go back to the initial part. Which part of when you say you're not a big fan of criminal justice reform, is this what you're talking about, or is there something a little bit more behind? Uh, it? No, all of all of the all of the false narratives on law enforcement, uh, the bias in uh, policing, in prosecuting, the the myth that there are first defense drug offenders, uh, the the this ridiculous. Uh, 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 idea that uh every that cost like cost of incarceration okay that that's a thing that's just a made-up number it sounds good libertarians use it to say what they'll save money but but costs of incarceration it's just a it's just a made-up pretend number and so uh to give you one example so i'm writing the manuscript and uh, i pull the numbers from our department of corrections website and at the time we're one of the cheapest in the nation minimum security costs fourteen thousand. maximum costs twenty eight thousand dollars a year Two months later, a buddy of mine's going to do a uh, talk at a law school there and try to ambush him on prison overcrowding. I pull some stuff in the manuscript and I go back to the website and I look and minimum went from fourteen to 17000 a year and maximum from 28000 to 30, uh, 33, went up 5000 a year. Like what? In two months, what the hell happened? Well, we had the largest commutation of prisoners in U.S. history, pushed by people from the right. We should do this. So, and, and so we do it to save money. Well, all that happened was is cost. So all we, you know, all we did was just because few people in prison, the Department of Corrections want the same budget. What do they do? They just raise the pretend number it costs to incarcerate them. So, so basically, and, and I mean, I'm not that smart. That evades detection of everybody. But so for, I mean, what happened was we let people out of prison that victimize other people for the sole purpose of saving money. All we did was raise the pretend number of what the costs of incarceration are. And that's juxtaposed against, let's spend money on treatment. Well, we don't know what treatment works, but what we, you know, University of Boston has done a study that, uh, you know, that uh, when somebody goes, it takes on average 6.9 treatment episodes for sustained sobriety. So that's one thing we can measure. And, but, but, you know, when 60 to 70% of people do not, they drop out of treatment within a couple of months. All right. When, so when eight, when you don't count 80% of the people that get out and, and, and don't complete it at, at, when you calculate your success rate, then all of a sudden your numbers look, look a lot better. And so again, the, the, the propaganda put out there to the public is we don't need incarceration. We need treatment. And that, yeah, but the problem is they redefine success as being about they followed the process as opposed to what's the outcome. Right. Well, we get the outcome we want, but no, but we followed the process. He went to rehab and to your point, well, 
what does rehab mean? What does rehab mean? And, and, and again, wouldn't it be nice? It's like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Thomas Sowell, but the, 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 there's a way of looking at the world. There are no utopian solutions. There are options and they have consequences. It usually is with consequence sucks less. It would be nice if you let people out of prison and they didn't victimize other people. We've talked about that DOJ study. I mean, on average, 46% get arrested in a year. And they but it's Pollyannic thinking. You gotta you gotta have this Pollyannic thinking to think that oh they've been rehabilitated. They're not going to go out and commit crime. Which the data again, everybody says trust the science. Well, let's go back and trust the data. Then the data clearly indicate that this is going to happen again. High probability. And then what people forget the factor. What's the cost to society? You say what? Here's the cost to incarcerate. What's the cost to Monzi? What's the cost to her family? What's the cost to that community just for that one offense? I mean, it, with, it's one of those things that when you let somebody out and they steal someone else's shit, what that is, that's not a line item at the budget because insurance rates go up, you know, you know, and, and so all of those, but, but they don't see that there. And, and so you're right. There's absolutely, there are consequences. And the thing is, if you let people out of prison, they victimize other people. Period. I mean, and you know what an example of that is? I don't want to hear anybody bitch about how much they're paying at the stores or why certain stores are closing. You know why? Because these gangs, organized retail theft that are going and basically cleaning out stores, nobody's stopping up, nobody's arresting them. At the end of the day, who pays for that? We do. They jack up our prices. We pay more for it so that somebody else doesn't have to suffer the consequences. Yep, that's exactly right. And so it's, uh, again, it, all the people that do pay for the stuff have to pay more to account for those uh, that that steal it. And again, since we've decriminalized, uh, uh, you know, we've had a little kind of run here in Oklahoma. They, they did it by state question. It's kind of a long story. But we have seen uh, retail theft has gone up uh, significantly on surveys and with the retailers association saying all, all that happens. Inventory loss in one chain, inventory loss tripled after we decriminalized that. Now, it wasn't just... The property crime, because the, the other people said, well, uh, it, it was a misdemeanor. Shopping lifting was a misdemeanor before, still a misdemeanor. So uh, with the fact we raised it to make make more things misdemeanor, that didn't affect it one bit. And I'm like, well, that assumes that crimes happen in a vacuum. We also decriminalize drug use to a perpetual misdemeanor. And when you when you look for thousands of years, when you remove a consequence, that behavior increases. And when drug use increases. Drug-related crime increases. Period. And how do you support your hundred dollar a day heroin habit, like you right. talked off about? Steve? Yeah, you got to go steal, steal. stuff. And, and they most often steal from their families. I mean, that's not even reported. I mean, most drug offenders steal from their grandparents and parents, apps, and they won't report it. And that has been off. I mean, it's only. Uh, I mean, they, they will take advantage of all their family, and, and all of them. They're surrounded by good meaning. Uh, enabling people, but that's just kind of what you see. So. so let's talk about one more thing before we ask you about, you said, not that there's anything funny about the death penalty, but you had a funny uh, story around a death penalty case. But let's talk real quick to final thing, because we hear all the time about the legalization of marijuana, about how it's going to decriminalize it. Uh, it's going to put the cartels out of business. Um, you know, what's your, what's your thought? What's your experience when it comes to that? Well, um, so, uh, I will tell us that, that that everything that has been promised by reformers for legalization, the opposite has happened. So we've done that in Oklahoma. And so, look, when I listen to y'all's podcast and, and I'm, I'm a little bit kind of nervous because you got like, I mean, Murph and these DEA guys and, uh, you know, the guys that got Chapo and Paul. I mean, they're they're badasses. Like they got 800 pounds of coke in a in a in a 
van. I'm like, damn. Well, I'll tell you right now, we have uh, we have legalized mar- marijuana, uh, and our scheme doesn't regulate very. It's very loose in regulating the growers. So uh, right now in Oklahoma, we have I think four times the wholesale growers than retail dispensaries. Well, there's no economic model in history. You can have more wholesalers than retailers. And uh, and we just did a, we had some, uh, again, what I do now, I prepare reports to the legislature for budgeting. That's kind of coming up. And and we talked about some, uh, some of the things we did. And so uh, last year, we... Uh, we see we with the plants we see and these plants are so i mean again when i started good the good weed from mexico was three percent thc yeah tetrodocannabinol the compound they're chasing to cause the euphoria dopamine dump okay three percent thc it's well in excess of 20 percent now yep. so what that means is is smoking a joint today is like smoking seven from 1996 but uh, what we're seeing is, is the, in these plants, they, they, they really indoor, they produce these fat, but they fat buds are so fat, they can't, the stalks can't hold them up. They got to have these little tomato cage uh, cones on them. Just the marijuana plants we seized last year in our, our agency uh, would have made, uh, I did the math here for the legislature. Um, okay, we, last year we seized 28,000 pounds of processed marijuana from these grows. Which, which at the ONDCP, uh, ONDCP uh, off, uh, Office of National Control Drug Policy, uh, they've got an estimate of 0.46 grams for a joint. Let's round it up to five and make it a little bit fat. Even with that, that, that raw weed seizure of processed weed is 26 million joints for our, our cardholders. With the plants, it was 222,000 plants with a modest output. Again, these are fatter ones that do this. Uh, that would be 201 million joints which would be a a a a, for every oklahoman that's a joint that's just what we seize not not the other stuff so we have imported the cartel and organized crime into oklahoma they use fronts they have hired lawyers it is off the charts when when we do an an eradication we've done two wires uh they've been in foreign languages uh mandarin and uh in fujinese it's been very difficult for us uh when they have multiple girls involved with these organized crime girls, we have to, we mobilized 60 National Guard people and dump trucks to take all the weed we're processing from these grows. And, uh, and, you know, it, and so, uh, so what's happened is, and so unlike my entire career, dope has been a, a source game. You got to, you got, who's the plug? That's the, you know, you don't get, you got to go between an unwitting, you've got to know the source. They're making so much weed here now that they are they they've got to find ways to offload it all across the country they don't even mess around with oklahoma selling it here on these wires because uh, they're doing that so what's going to happen is two things happen one uh there will be an effort to normalize it to increase the demand and we're seeing that they would like to have that uh you know uh, with children and so uh, you know, so what we'll see is an effort. That's why I see the packaging. Edibles are so big now. The concentrates. Gummies. gummies all the different colors. So at a dispensary, we, we have no limits on on the concentration. So, uh, and I'll kind of put this in perspective. So one of our inspection agents goes to a dispensary, sees the gummy worms, a medication, mind you, gummy worm, uh, rainbow box, 500 milligrams per gummy. There was 20... Uh, 
20 gummies says 10,000 milligrams. So to put that in perspective, okay, THC is actually a schedule three, which means you can get a prescription for it synthetically made, not, not to, you know, you're not going to go to Walgreens and get a, you know, a uh, rolling paper and some uh, purple kush to, you know, to smoke, but in a regulated milligram. A marin it's called marinol, all right? It's for narcolepsy, appetite suppressant. It's not used very often, but it can be in a theory. That's marinol, generic dronabinol. It's all insider trading, but here's the deal. One of those marinol tablets is 2.5 milligrams. Recommend daily dose by the FDA is two tablets per day, five milligrams a day. A one 500 milligram gummy is like taking three months and 10 days of your Marinol tablets all at once. And so, and, and what we've seen is, is like before legalization in Oklahoma, we averaged five poison control, not all overdoses, poison control averaged five pediatric zero to five overdoses on cannabis a year. In 2022, they had... 269. That's a 53.8% increase in pediatric, pediatric overdoses. The kids going in the pantry, seeing the edibles and eating the candy. So again, what I'd say, I'm sorry, that's, that's, I mean, I don't want to call you out on your math, but if you went from five, you said to how many 200? So and we went from, there were average before legalization, the pediatric overdoses in Oklahoma poison control averaged five per year. In 2022, we had 269. No, that's that's more than 50%. You're talking about a, like a 5,000. 53-fold. Oh, 53-fold. I thought you said 53%. No, 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 no. Yeah, 53. 53. Oh, that'd be like, was that 5,000? I don't know. It's 53-fold increase. Well, yeah, 53. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like a 5,000% yeah. right. increase. So, again, wouldn't it be nice if we could actually, and again, because of the normalization of it that happens that I, I just wish with all the advocates would say, look, here's a kids taking the gummies. That's just part of freedom. If they acknowledge that, but they won't acknowledge those kind of things because these, these changes have impacts. It, it is visibly changing my state right now with people buying up land for uh, out of state interests, overseas interests. I think we have 13 different uh, organized crime, 13 countries, organized crime syndicates have come in here. Uh, and, and done this. There's a labor trafficking. They're just producing it. And so... Uh, and one thing begets another. It's broken window theories. If you allow marijuana to exist, marijuana is a cash crop. You're right. What else do you get with that? You get uh, all the things you're talking and, about. And this can't be because all the proponents of legalization said it's going to do away with crime. I mean, what the hell's wrong with you guys in Oklahoma? Yeah. Look, look, you know, Rocky Mountain, the, the, you know, Colorado's ahead of us in this. So we're fastly catching up. Their HIDA groups, Rocky Mountain HIDA, did a report on the impact of legalization. Every, they, every indicator, again, every promise that's been made by legalization, by libertarians and kind of the social justice advocates alike, everyone has proved to be false. Every single, the opposite has happened. I had a discussion with one of our listeners and it was respectful. We just said, hey, show me some stats. I went and pulled the stats from Colorado. Coroner's office, where they looked at death certificates and they looked at the suicides, the increase in suicide rate for teen where there was elevated levels of THC in their system, same thing increased like 200%. You know, there you don't get anything like this without a consequence. With every action, there is an equal reaction. And so when you legalize this stuff, people think, you know, they, they get the wrong impression. They go, ah, oh, you're just, you guys are just against weed. You're against, no, what we're against is these severe impacts to society that because nobody thought far enough ahead, 
you wanted something so bad without thinking downstream, what's going to happen with this? What's going to happen with the people who grow it? To your point, now that you've got 13 different organized crime groups in your state, what else is going on in your state? What's the cost of human trafficking? What's the cost of child abduction? What's the cost of drugged ending? I can guarantee you right now, we did a we did a thing when I was on the community policing committee for the International Association of Chiefs of Police. We brought in Colorado and Washington State Patrol. John Batiste is a buddy of mine, was the colonel, uh, the head of the Washington State Patrol. When they legalized it out there, he said our drugged driving took a significant spike upwards. Because it was legal. I think it doubled in Washington. The fatality accidents of what well, they popped off for THC doubled. And just realize that if you do that, that there will be, again, if, if you want to say, look, running over Meemaw, you know, you run her down because you're high on weed. That's the cost of, of, of me being able to get high. Say it, but quit lying about it. I mean, that's that that's the thing is realize there is a consequence. To that, and that's the direct results that, you know, that we have. And so, uh, again, right after legalization, we, we, we have a 53-fold increase uh, in, in, the, in kids over somewhere on ventilators. And the thing is, because think how much they're, t- they're taking at one time. And so, uh, again, we... we and, and you know, the other thing, too, is here's the, here's the other thing, too. If you want to package it, package it so that when they look at it, they realize the impact they're about to get. Not Don't, don't dress it up like gummy worms, like stuff that they're used to that comes out of a candy store that if they eat it, the worst thing they happen is get an upset stomach. You know, they get sick. This shit kills them. It's the same way with synthetic marijuana out in, in, uh, when Javier was running the DEA office in San Francisco. You know, he made that uh, one of his priorities was to address the shops that are selling synthetic as bath salts is all it is, but they could label it as something else. And, you know, hey, and that's a great point because, again, kind of go back to our reform. Let's talk about the history of success. You mentioned the synthetic cannabinoids, uh, synthetic, the, the bath salts, and that was kind of, the bath salts were kind of a stimulant, synthetic cannabinoids they, they would put on uh, on leafy matter, sell as like incense and, and smoke that kind of shit. Uh, well, you know, there were, hosp- there were uh, helicopters landing in hospitals. That was a, a thing in the news all the time. It's gone. It's a, what happened? DEA had, uh, scheduled it by administrative rule. A lot of states use the, the Synthetic Control Act. It wasn't actually was synthetic. You know what we did? The convenience store selling it. We made it suck to give that to kids. And guess what? It stopped. There's a history of it of success with enforcement with meth labs, the synthetic cannabinoids. And again, we solved it in public safety. It wasn't some think tank jackass from a student union. See, I'm not going to wound up. But it, it was the law enforcement that had the knowledge. And you know what? All the all these freaking thinkers and public they don't have to jack with kids at meth labs because we took care of it. They don't have to deal with helicopters landing, picking up kids at, at, at high schools. They're taking this kind of stuff. They can buy it at a convenience store because law enforcement came up with a solution we we did it by rule we enforced the rule and again we made it suck to do that and guess what they quit doing it i mean even the most even the most look these are deviants we're talking about but even the craziest most deviant person if you kick them in the nuts figuratively they're not they don't want to get kicked in the nuts and and it, and if if we do that, and that's just basic human behavior. So there's a long track record of success with enforcement and the debacles of of laying off. That's going to get kind of back to the book again, and it's the example you have right there. Because I can see you running for office, your campaign's look. We're going to kick them in the nuts. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I don't know. I 
I, I'm, we got to bring it back and so we can see if we can get him come out of his shell and tell us what he really thinks Dude, about I'm this I'm telling stuff. you, it only took us three well, and a so half he, hours to get an opinion let's, out of let's, this guy. Let's, 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 <laughs> what's funny is every time I start doing this, I say to myself, here's the deal. I mean, I told myself. Oh, yeah. It's like the second day in the academy. Now I'm going to keep quiet. Know, yeah. I'm gonna, oh, yeah. And I, I, hear, and I, I tell, I, I, I speak and I like, you know, uh, now if, look, if, if it's like a church group, I'll be pretty good. Again, if my mother-in-law listens, M- M- Myrna, I'm sorry. She heard me cuss on here. It wouldn't seem legit. So I, I, I was told myself if, if if my mother-in-law listens, uh, but I, this it just kind of comes out, and and I start. I, well, I have the mother-in-law version that we okay. beep out all, right, all we'll the profanity. Uh, <laughs> that would be a lot of editing. <laughs> and, and, but I start talking, and I and I because I start sweating and getting amped up because I, look, I really sincerely. Uh, we've all seen it. This is not news. It's, it's not like any, now sometimes the numbers shock people. There ain't a public safety professional yet, cover prosecutor, you can get these facts to like, oh my, holy hell, I did not know that. But they, they, I mean, they knew that rehab was, it was a farce and how it was pitched out there as a solution by people wanting to make money and say, oh, well, you know, bill your insurance for rehab. But, uh, uh, you know, they just didn't know kind of the numbers uh, behind it. So there's it, it, the, the science. Again, talk about weed. There's a whole body of science, uh, with the National Academy of Sciences on on the use of cannabis and schizophrenia, psychosis, suicidal ideation, depression, all those things. But it doesn't get play in there. I mean, what does the media do? A freaking anecdote. Some mom that says, "Oh, it, it helped my cancer," you know, or, or something like that. It's, it, it's yeah, and but they ignore the facts. Which you go back again. This goes back to Colorado. Look at the increase of THC content. Look at the increase of suicidal ideation. The trips to uh, ER. I'll tell you what. One way to get people to change their views of stuff is put them out in the field to where they've got to go investigate the cases. To where they have to go. You know, the worst thing that sucked about being a state trooper or even being a detective, is going and knocking on somebody's door at 2 o'clock in the morning to give them the worst news they're probably ever going to get in their life. You know, somebody died. And then the question is, why? Why? Why my kid? You know, why did you know why did this have to happen? Could answer the how, the what, the when, the where. Never had an answer for the why. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I respect the guys that give death notifications. I've, I've never had to do that. And I, a lot of meeting with victims, families in private, but when you, you look, you see their pain, it's genuine and you have to, it is horrible to do. And, and it is absolutely senseless in, in terms of, uh, why it happens. And so I had to do three in one week that involves seven deaths Ugh, total, man. And it's like, I never want to do that again, you know, and the military people, friend of mine um they lost their son over in iraq um ied um military should anytime the military shows up in, in class a uniforms it, it's never good news you know and so it's just uh, you know murph you, you know it too i mean it's just like when you're down in columbia dealing with all of the families of the cops who got killed all the funerals you went to you want to make changes in policy make these policymakers go out into the field where it's really happening and see the downstream the real effects of the policies you want to put in place, go visit that house with the kid whose mom is and dad are so strung out they can't do anything, or the kid who's just overdosed for the third time and was brought back with Narcan. How about Steve this weekend? You know, you know Mike Chapman up here. Uh, we we just had two more fentanyl uh, poisonings over the weekend. Well, it's just it's just like you said at the very beginning, Brian, about that first judge you worked with. He told you get out of the ivory tower, go see where the real world, and that's what the people that are making these decisions that are supporting this. That's what they need to see. Let's let's lighten the load here a little bit. Tell us a funny story about the death penalty. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's okay. That's so, good. Oh, it is. I mean, it's, it can. Um, so there's a transition yeah, for yeah. you. So um, the uh, 
I think it was my second death penalty. I've done three, but uh, so it was a it was a horrible case where all is all over. Uh, an old couple was killed, stabbed to death by a guy that knew him. Basically, the, the Social Security check came in. They cashed it, and he wanted it for beer money. Uh, he had one little pocket knife. He stabbed uh, the female victim forty one times. None individually fatal. She actually collectively bled to death. Uh, we could. She was in a wheelchair. We know she was upright and moved two different stabbing incidents because there were some defensive wounds. She put her hands on her leg. They could, they could, the, the reconstructionist could time the blood trickled down her leg. Then when it changed direction, she fell out and crawled. The, uh, uh, the other guy, he weighed 110 pounds and a walker. He was stabbed se- uh, seven times, could confirm all with the same blade except one, which is in his chest, which is probably uh, the guy moving the knife back and forth in his chest, uh, kind of to kill him. He tried to make a break for it. And, and um, so we have this uh, this this death penalty trial. Now we actually made the case because the uh, the defendant's fingerprint, a bloody fingerprint they got with luminol, was actually above one of the bodies. Now he took the stand and said uh, that uh, I just came over there. I didn't think you guys would believe me, so I checked on him and I headed out and burned my clothes, which is some of the other evidence that we had. What's well, so that's what everybody does, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, that's what he said, and he tried blaming on somebody else. We put on the trial. Yeah, like, oh, that wasn't my fingerprint. That was somebody yeah. else's well, fingerprint. So yeah, it, my... You mentioned the other guy that that did the, that had had done it, and so, uh, so that that's kind of the and we uh, the only time I've ever had a jury they they get they they deadlock was one holdout on guilt innocence. And when he also he taken the stand and killed the story and said, "I've never had a knife. I never carry a knife. I, I've never had a knife." And so that became kind of a thing. So. The jury actually gets sequestered and put in a hotel overnight. Like they can't talk to anybody. I've never had that happen where the judge, they're like, we're not going to get it tonight. But they go back, got to take them to a hotel, uh, bus them there. Uh, They come back. And uh, and then I I don't know. I mean, within like 30 minutes, I mean, even before the morning would be the mid morning break, they come back and find them guilty. The one holdout. Uh, We talked to jurors later. She was just didn't want to do, have to decide death. And so uh, that's where we're at. Well, in a death penalty case, you go into the first, you just got guilt, innocence. They did it. Second phase is it's the piece of shit phase. You show everything he's done. Okay, it has to be what's called an aggravating circumstance. It's like a whole nother trial. You have like a, 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 it's called a bill of particulars. It's like your charging document for why I should get that. Uh, it could be, is a heinous, atrocious, cruel? Is it uh, a risk of death to more than one person? We have that. Uh, we have a prior violent felony. We have to uh, to cover up a, a another felony. I mean, we have almost all of them. Well, you read his history. And, and there's this one old man and, and he's like just the stereotypical old guy, got his little belly and he's, and, and he's on the, the back row. And I read, I go to read the bill of particulars about the rape. He had a manslaughter case. He killed a guy in, uh, uh, in, uh, Arizona and a rape did he, robbery. Was it, did it use a knife? Yeah, he actually, yeah, he did use a knife there. This guy oh, never I thought had he a didn't knife. have a knife. Oh, yeah, he never, yeah. never had a knife. So this old man, and he is just there and just, well, look, you can just see it like he's, he's crossing his arms and he's pissed and his, his, his belly's out there and they're kind of resting on his belly. So the first victim, we found the, the rape victim. He raped when she was 16. And we, but she's first, first one out of the gate. And again, this is his whole backdrop. And so, uh, you know, in, in, in state court, unlike federal, you can leave the lectern and move around. Victims don't want to, they, they want to lock eyes with you, even cops. So you kind of move over by the jury. And of course, like, you know, the thing about a trial is it's kind of weird because you have this pretend dialogue, like you don't know the answers, but, uh, 
but I do this. So, so I, uh, so I, I do this examination with her. I'm, I'm right by I me. Mean, I'm like leaning up against the jury, the little half wall in front of the jury. So they, so she'll be looking kind of towards them. I'm not, I'm not going to tell her to look at them. I mean, this is mortifying to her, but I said, so, um, you know, t- you know, as she's describing, uh, raping, you know, uh, she, he said that he's raping her and holding a knife to her throat. Again, this guy never had a knife. And he says, uh, uh, you know, he, he's raping me and, and he's got a knife to my throat, raping me. And I won't say her name. I said, uh, so, uh, and I said, so while, and again, when you want to kind of drive the point home, you re- in your question, repeat that fact. So I'm like, so as he's raping you with a knife to your throat, do you, do you say anything to him? And, uh, and she says, yes. And I said, well, what'd you say to him? As he's holding the knife, you, th- you know, with this knife at your throat, raping you. I said, "Look, I'm I, I, I'm not on the pill. Please don't come inside me. I don't want to get pregnant." I said, "Okay." After you pleaded with him that and, and the knife in your throat, did he say anything? And she says, "Yes." Like, what did he say? She said, "He just laughed and said, name it after me, bitch.'" And so, oh. right when that happens, well, right when that happens, and I, I'm I'm setting up this kind of at that point. That old man who can't hear, it's a Southern courtroom, you know, he just screams out, Jesus Christ, and just, what is that, man? And I lock up. I'm like, oh, God, what do I do? And so, I mean, uh, and the funny part is, everybody ignored it. Me, uh, I mean, the, the judge, I mean, I no one knew what to do. And uh, and it's not like, what, what's the defense lawyer going to do? You know, who's a decent guy? I mean, he'd play the hand he's dealt. Yeah, but if he objects to it, he's only going to draw the point well, home yeah, even well, more. What's he going to say? Your Honor, may the record deflect the testimony against my client was so inflammatory. Jury number six screamed, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, so we, so we go through that. And, and, and again, but I mean, it's like one of those, you know, you hear something, I don't know, look ahead and what to do. And, and it just, everybody ignores it because no one ever seen that before. I always want to check that transcript and kind of see if right in the middle, it says, Journal number six, Jesus Christ, exclamation point, you know, did, did you have to look at the defendant? No, I was, I was looking at, at my victim and it, well, at that point, I'll be honest with you. It scared me. Cause I never seen that. Well, I mean, I say scared me, just startled me. And startled, like, yeah. my God, this is, you know, cause they, they make a record pick apart everything in a, uh, in a death penalty case. And they bring in no admonishment from the judge, like keep your opinions to yourself no, or anything like no, that. No one says anything. I think it surprised everybody. And we just all, including me and like, I vapor locked for a second, like looking ahead, like I don't want to look anywhere else. Cause I don't know where to look. And so after a few seconds, I just like kind of go. And what happened next? You know, I just kind of go into that. So. Oh, man. <laughs> so what was the outcome of the penalty phase? Oh, they gave him death. Yeah. I mean, how else, what else could it be? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, now again, there was a same holdout that didn't want to find guilty thinking of going into that. But ultimately, but we had like 11 that said, huh, I ain't voting for anything but death uh, on this. And so it was, they were out a while and they came back and gave the death penalty. Wow. Has he has as has the uh, has he been uh, has the death penalty been exercised so against him? Yet? He uh, you know he died in prison before it happened. So uh, uh, the chicken shit. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, natural causes, yeah, or natural did co- uh, yeah. he have help? No, nope. was he assisted in some no, way? He there? was in the, Yeah, in, in Oklahoma, <laughs> the death row is like in some kind of underground. It's the special they call it H block at our maximum security prison, and so he was down there. And, uh, you know, cause, and part of it is it takes so long with all the appeals, maybe 10, uh, 15 years. And he was an older guy 
And so, um, so quick thing, you'll appreciate this. Remember the case down in Georgia, the guy who appealed the death penalty by saying, Hey, look, it's cruel and unusual because I was an IV drug user and the drugs are going to hurt my veins and you can't give me the needle. And no, I've not heard that one. No, uh, you should go that that was actually, that was actually the guy that was involved in our robberies. I was in Atlanta testifying at a grand jury a guy named Michael Nance. And so his, the Supreme court ruled on it. They said, no, look, uh, you can kill him. You just can't kill him with the needle. You got to come up with something else. Like he wanted the firing squad. Well, we don't have a firing squad in Georgia. We had one in Utah. Gary Gilmore um, was the first guy executed. But uh, you're talking about stories about, uh, you know, testifying. I learned that I the, one of the U.S. attorneys, AUSAs, came out there and he's laughing. And they're doing a case. I think it's a robbery case. But a guy was robbing a place, came out. Um, stab somebody, they take it federal because of some other violations this guy has. He's got a gun, got a knife. But anyway, but um, they're interviewing and their witness is like an 83-year-old, you know, southerly black gentleman, bow tie, just very nice, but he's old, got a cane, and he's their star witness. And they're asking him questions just like, so So the defense attorney gets his chance to turn trial. So, so you're telling me from uh, to your point, you reinforce it from a distance of 100 blocks away. You, Mr. Jones, an 83-year-old man, your prescription is this. You saw my client do this. Yes, you saw him do this. Yes. Mr. Jones, just exactly how far you can see. Can you see? He looks and he goes, well, I can see the sun. How far is that? <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. You just got to, you know, these, you know, what's your response to that? Well, the, yeah, game, it was game over for that. He's laughing. He said that was the quickest verdict he's gotten in a trial in like 10 years, you know? <laughs> well, I, you know, I remember um, we had, you know, we have a lot of cases. We have several agents that were bilingual and they, they spoke Spanish first. But they speak, they learn English at, you know, you know, four or five years old and, and they have no accent. They, they, they don't realize. And, and so to some, some, some people that, you know, in America were spoiled with all English, they don't understand a truly bilingual person. So defense lawyers are like, they're saying, he said this to me and I, this is what this wiretap call means, blah, blah, blah. And, and defense lawyers, are you certified to speak uh, Spanish as if there's some kind of certification? There's one for translators to be, but, you know, and he's like, uh, no. So you're not certified how can we know? And he said, sir, I'm not certified to speak English either, but I learned that language after Spanish. I know Spanish better. And it just it, 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 like this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. just, the, boon, the balloon deflates. Yeah. What's, what's the first rule of lawyering in court? You never ask a question you don't already know the answer yeah. to, right? right? Yeah. Well, it, it cross-examining, there, there was uh, a case I had, uh, it, I was, uh, there was a meth lab case. And, uh, and I had, I was a prosecutor. I went to the bureau the first time in the legal division and another prosecutor's going to case to jury trial. And the guy had all kinds of priors would have gotten life without parole with this meth lab. And, uh, and so they brought me back because what happens is his girlfriend says, it's all mine. The whole lab's mine. We know it. I mean, he had a fricking his hand on a spatula with a wet pile of dope when they hit the door, but she said all mine and, uh, and everything. Well, they, they intercept a call. I say intercept. It's on the jail recording. And the undersheriff says, hey, you may want to know this. And she says basically something like, you guys better, they left her in jail. Like, you better bond me out or I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do and testify against Jerry. And so I call her over there and, uh, and I, and I, I bring her over there. I can't remember her name, but I said, and I, as a prosecutor, I'm interviewing her with that one officer there. And I said, she tells me it wasn't hers. And I said, well, was it Jerry's meth lab? And she looked and she looks down, looks back up and looks like, I don't want to answer that question. Okay, Brian. I'm like, okay. And, but she says it's not hers. Well, they go to trial later and she goes up and testifies and they, they heard kids had gone in custody. And so, uh, her, uh, her, uh, 
she takes a stand and they call me in rebuttal to, to impeach her. So then this offensor who I knew goes up and I just go through this whole conversation. I, 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 wrote, I, I typed out a summary in the file and I do this and put it in there. And, you know, again, in cross-examination, you can control the, the witnesses and just say, isn't this true? Isn't this true? Yes, yes. Make them say and kind of, and kind of bail. Hopefully the prosecutor will kind of come back and redirect and clean that up. But she says, so you've prosecuted like, you know, whatever, 700 drug cases, just 300 meth labs in your career. Yes, I have. And all she goes through all this. And so, and you remember all of these things with just this, the, the details and all these things, this one case, basically saying, I did so many, how could I recall this? And I said, yes. And, and she goes through and, and, and is making, and she's asking the questions and she should have just gone and say, you know, okay, I'm done. And then made it saved for argument. Like, how do you remember that? But she says, and can you tell the jury how that, how you can remember that? And I said, absolutely. I, and I looked at the jury and I said, I said, um, there's a few things that, that they had a child in the home. And uh, look, I've had a lot of methamphetamine cases other than, other than interdiction cases off the interstate, interstate shipments. This is a, one of the large, if not the largest meth case we had that was locally produced in the lab. That's So the significance of the case of all the ones I had is very significant. Number two, there was a child in the home that was under three. And if you know anything about off gases and meth labs, they are, they are, they're heavier than air. They go to the bottom. And so because child, children have higher respiration rates, uh, they actually inhale those. It's more dangerous for them. They're down lower and inhale that in the carpet. I was worried about that child and, and the, uh, the deprived action that they were, the state was filing that. And again, look, you're right. I don't normally t- make a written note of an interview and a file. And I go through all this kind of stuff and she's sitting there. And I said, so this, because of what the danger of this child, the significance, the amount of drugs, I absolutely remember this case. And I, I wrote this in there and she just looks at me and says she's over there crawling under the table yeah. and that was that thing and just don't you know you, she could have made the point but just said you know why and like oh well, let me tell you why and if and you know if, if but you know if you and and again it's just you know it's kind of a talking about meth labs and drugs a little bit of a home game for me and you get, just ask me why to a jury I had Let's a go. rookie defense lawyer ask me one time. He's saying stuff. I said, you guys give me an answer. He said, but are you asking for my opinion? He goes, yes. So I took a big, deep breath and I started oh, yeah. going off. He tried to object. And the county attorney goes, your honor, he asked for his opinion. <laughs> the judge goes, yes, you did. So you get what you yeah, That yeah. is the longest sentence I ever had without a period on it. I mean, I just can't recall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those don't come along very often. Yeah, I know. And that, yeah, once. Exactly, yeah. you know, once. Because most of them are pretty good. They know not to fall for those traps. But hey, so let's, let's close this out by talking talking about what are you doing now so you've got this book um what's next what do you what do you you know where are you at in your career you still got a few years in you you're going to do something else what's next so um right now there's uh you know being the uh, deputy director at uh, at the bureau uh that is definitely a full plate we have challenges i mean our, our fentanyl seizures are, are are like four four times higher i think than, than last year Tell us about the size of your agency too. Give us a give us an example. How big is our BNO? So so we have I I, I think so we have uh, agents and so uh, I'll include we have several TFOs. Uh, I think we have eighteen TFOs. I think that I looked at the org chart. I think it puts us at one hundred twenty or one hundred thirty. I, I should know. Uh, which again that that's from a agent an administrator standpoint. I love TFOs because they're not on our payroll, but their uh the cases they do why all those kind of things they do kind of flow through our our support divisions and property and, and our legal division so uh, we have probably about i'd say i think we uh if if all of our spots are filled which they're not you know we're in a constant state of, of getting those i think we have about 200 employees of which like 120 130 would be uh 
uh, agents. So a lot of now we have like 18 analysts. So that's that that includes. So uh, you get into kind of some support staff. We just all of the administrative aspects we have with our registrants and doctors as are some of the civilian positions we have as well. Good size agency. Yeah. So but what about you? How long are you going to hang in there? Got some plans for the future? You know, I um, I can tell you if I win that big ass Powerball. Uh-huh. Then uh, what I'm going to do is is I'm going to first speak of all don't on tell anybody issue. you want it. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. All everything is everything is going to go in my wife's name. And you guys think, look, I'm you are not going to believe this. There's some restraint to me right now. And at some point, I got a plan. At some point, it's ways off when I'm putting everything in my wife's name. And uh, then you just retired. went off my the rails. Pensions are secure. You know, I'm going to have an exit interview with the world. Daddy's got some shit to say. So that that's on the, that's way off in the future. I'm not there yet. Uh, get my kids through college. Um, you know, it, it's the, the, the being the deputy director right now is probably taking, uh, it's, it's just a lot right now. I mean, I've, I've been at it just about a year. And so, uh, there's some things I'm learning it's to, to fully do that. Uh, I've have it, I had to cut back a little bit of, of the teaching and, uh, and speaking. I'm kind of behind on, I used to kind of release fourth amendment blogs of just, a. I had a goal in 21, uh, I'm sorry, 22 of just like once, once, twice a week, releasing, uh, a, a, a warless search and seizure kind of quick tip blog and taking all those as a manuscript for like a, putting those together for the next one for like a, a warrantless search and seizure for, for police officers. Um, uh, you know, I, I like the policy stuff. I think it's important. Uh, I do like, uh, speaking about search warrant writing, report writing, the, the things I have in both worlds, because I, I do feel like that's one thing I can do to kind of advance uh, the public safety mission. Uh, at some point in time, I'll probably do a, I mean, again, remember when I released the manuscript in March 20th, March March 20th of 20, we're getting up coming up on, I'm sorry, March, March of 21. We're coming up on two years. I'll probably do a second edition because there's a lot more data in there. In well, terms yeah, because I was going to say you really didn't address fentanyl, you know, to the extent no, it, was, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a thing, right? It wasn't there, and so uh, again, and and then all, all of the information, the data information we have uh, with uh, those. Uh, I mean, look, kind of Portland and all those things were starting right uh, early on, and so there's the, a better historical record to kind of catch up on on, on where we are with that. So. Uh, well, I like that too, because you're you're going to use data. It's not just about, oh, this is the way I feel, or, you know, it's right. not, it's not like, hey, guys, here's the data. Yeah. Support we, we, position. We, we can't just go up and say, hey, that's a bunch of bullshit. And it is. But that, here's but why. That, we, here's why. And We've here's the data behind it. Here's the reasoning. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that, that is to arm people with facts. I think that's, the data is on our side. It's, it's, it's easy. It's just, uh, and I told myself I would never write another nonfiction book again. It's so many citing sources and making sure it float, but. I've got it here, dude. I am looking through this. And like you said, you know, you were quoting the one thing, Hayek, and you've got, um, I'm just looking through all the things, hair, rehab success rates, how effective is drug addiction treatment? I mean, you've got, this is, you know, only a lawyer can write a hundred page document and call it a brief, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have got, I mean, this, this is, this is like, a, a, you know, something that's going to the Supreme Court with the citations and the precedents and everything else. I mean, it's, once you read that, it's well sourced. It's not like you're not wanting for authoritative sources to go to. And again, like, wh- what do you say, Murph? You know, hey, go, don't trust us. Go do your own research. Go Absolutely. find your own facts. Well, don't find your own facts. Find the facts, you know, and you might have a different opinion. But then make up your own mind. Yeah, make up your own mind. So I think this is the point where we say the prosecution rests. 
Yeah, buddy. I tell you what, Brian, it's been an honor to have you on here, brother. It's The stories are hilarious. They're very informative. And the, and the topics that you're bringing up is just so appropriate for what's going on in our country today. So what you're doing, keep doing it. You know, we need more people that, that just like we just said, you're, you're, quant- you're qualifying your opinions with facts, not just somebody spouting off at the mouth saying this is the way I think it ought to be for no reason at all. Yeah. You know, it, uh, for for police officers and prosecutors, we came in our opinions through experience. Again, it, it it wasn't like what we read in the sociology book as a freshman in college or what we heard the student union or anything like that. I mean, it's it's uh, th- there's a long uh, you know the 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 college model is good, but there, there's been an apprentice model around for uh, a much longer than our higher education. That's the micro method, man. Just, and, right? Yeah. yeah, and just and and look, if, if you look at that law enforcement experience, th- there's a reason there's virtually no dissension in public safety on on these issues. No, there's not two factions of a small. There's not a small little minority. It, it would be almost insignificant uh, of those that kind of deviate from these kind of beliefs. And they, and again, they just arrive at that from their experience. They see there all the time. Go. And there so, you go. Well, look, right. brother, you know what we'll have to do? And Murph, let's think about this. Maybe what we do is we do a uh, special episode. Like we've got, you know, pretty good size uh, fan group on Facebook. But, you know, there's a whole thing too. It just, you know, you know, let's just take apart some of the myths about search and seizure, about what you can do. And it's not, and I know some people that, oh, you're giving away their playbook. No, folks. You want educated, you, you want people in the public educated as well, but you also want cops educated. You want them to know, you know, so picking apart some of these myths, these common misconceptions. You can't do that. Yes, I can. What was it? It was Sherry, right? Sherry Foster said, if they ask if you're caught three times, you have to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, I mean, that's, that's, well, yeah, the other thing, I, the thing that, uh, it's like some of these guys that like, uh, they'll say that, you know, I've seen interdiction guys, bless their heart. You know, they said, you told him he's free to go. Was he free to go? And they say, uh, no, you're a liar. You lied to him. And look, creating his state of mind, it, it's it's perfectly acceptable to lie to a defendant. Trickery you may and chicanery also- were approved by the Supreme Court. Yeah, Those were the two absolutely. words. Well, yeah. look, I, was, I, was, I said the point. So like, look, if, if you don't like lying to a shitbag, undercover work's going to suck. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it ain't like you're going to say, you know, you walk into a deal like. Hey, uh, hey, man, are you a cop? And like you say, God damn it! Hey, ten twenty-two guys. Uh, the yeah. D- he asked me, and so got it out. <laughs> man, son of a you! Oh, I'll be, you better watch it. You may, I may catch you sometime. You're not going to ask. I mean, it's just not a unbelievable. You know, and people so, are idiots. Yeah, you see, kind of those myths, and I mean, there's a whole bunch I've seen with Miranda, and I mean, all kinds of stuff. And, the suspect entered. So anyway, anytime, hey, guys, anytime I can do that. Well, we'll have, we'll have to figure out something, make a good use of your time. Uh, so, hey, but look, this is us thanking you. Me, people can't see this. Me saluting you for your great work. Um, you know, even though you're in Oklahoma, I know you wanted to be in Kansas and go to KU Law School, which I think would have been much better than the OU Law School. But hey, no, look, but still, but it, it's a it's kind of a special thing too, being from the West. The people are great. It's a great, you know, a lot of good, hardworking people out there. You just want to take care of them. So this again, this is me. Thank you for protecting the Midwest. Keep being safe i still have family in the midwest so i appreciate what you do and uh look we'll we'll definitely get you back on but what you have to do folks gotta go get his book and we'll put it on our book page again injustice for all the and it's in parentheses familiar fallacies of criminal justice reform by brian serber Check it Thank out. you all very I much. Mean, it has been an absolute honor, and uh, uh, I didn't think we'd talk this long, but uh, we, next time, let's, have, let, let's just get a beer. How about that? Because this is the kind of stuff we do over a beer in the hospitality room. There you go. 
All right, brother. If you don't go anywhere, everybody stay right there and stay tuned for the debrief. told you good midwest kid makes good finds a serial or finds a rapist in his courtroom just simply because he's nosy and he asks questions the amber alert mozzie the girl they recovered i mean how can you not listen to stuff like this and not go oh, i love yeah. this stuff i mean <laughs> these stories you know and, he, and i mean he stressed the points that we're trying to get across with the, the whole purpose of game of crimes is to highlight what law enforcement does out there to to help others, to protect those that can't help themselves. You know, it's just it's phenomenal. Uh, just I love the interview. And and one thing we didn't get to bring up is, I mean, Brian has been recognized several times with different awards uh, for his <clears throat> his uh, work as a prosecutor as well as a police officer. Two thousand one and 02, Association of Narcotic Enforcement Officers State Prosecutor of the Year. 2005 Distinguished Adjunct Faculty Award winner for Northern Oklahoma College, 2011 and 12 Association of Oklahoma Narcotic Enforcer State Officer of the Year, 1213 Recipient of Association of Oklahoma Narcotic Enforcement Officers Outstanding Achievement Award. I mean, uh, 2015 Rogers County Pro Co Prosecutor of the Year. This guy, he's he's out there doing. It. He's writing books. He's putting his opinion out there, and that's what I like about his book where uh, you had mentioned earlier about the uh, police reform, Injustice for All, the Familiar Fallacies of Criminal Justice Reform. He's putting his opinion out there. He's not taking a party line. He's telling you what he's thinking, but it's not just opinion of Brian Serber. It's supported through science and facts, real facts, you know, not just, oh, I heard somebody say that, so that makes it true. So loved everything he said. This was a fantastic uh, guest to have on the show. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, absolutely great. So, uh, and, and I'll tell you what, again, we'll put it on our, our website, just Injustice for All. Just make sure you go out. You can find that, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Just download it, read it. And uh, like you said, Steve, the thing I like, it's evidence-based. It's fact-based. It's not, he has an opinion, but his opinion is based upon, I here's how I arrived at it. And then he goes through the data. So, and the book is, the book is, uh, book. you know, it's footnoted. It's, it's, you might look at like a Supreme Court opinion. It's got all the footnotes. He, there is, everything is documented. If he says something, there's a footnote for it that documents it. So and this you got to read it. So this is a number one bestseller as well. So you can yeah, check it out. Number one. We only get number ones on here. Everybody's number one. You're number one. I'm a number one. Everybody's number one. <laughs> well, we hope you guys enjoyed that. Again, if you did, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you think about it. It's magic. We don't know how it works, but we just know that it does work. Uh, so, you know, make sure you leave a review. Let us know what you think. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com where you will find information about the show here, as well as we've got the book listing for this, any pictures that Brian may or may not have sent us or that we may have, uh, you know, uh, you know, fabricated, you know, to show because he didn't send us a picture, we may make one up and stick it on there. With artificial intelligence, we can almost do anything these days. So 
we'll have some good pictures. So Brian, either you make sure you send us pictures. Otherwise, guess what? So, and also head on over to that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, but where you got to be is Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Like we said, we're just released episode 14. By the time you hear this, the final episode, episode 15 of the Real DE Narcos on the Real DE Narcos Cali edition will be coming out, bringing it in to the gentleman of the Cali cartel. And I'm telling you, Steve, just the storytelling in it. You know, with 15 hours, we probably could have had 30 hours, but we squeezed it into 15. Yeah. Uh, and Chris, uh, I tell you what, he's got, a, I think he's got an eidetic memory. That boy doesn't forget anything. Um, but that, listen, as far as Game of Crimes and the Patreon channel, help us promote this. You know, we're trying to grow our numbers. We're trying to get the word out. We get a lot of positive comments about law enforcement. That, you know, people didn't realize that cops are really people, too. That, that We have families, you know, that we go through the same trials and tribulations that everybody else goes through. So we're trying to spread the word. So help us do that by telling your friends, have them tune in to Game of Crimes, download the episodes, uh, give us the five star, or you give us the stars that you think we deserve. And I said five stars. That's what you should give us. Uh, but let us know your comments, too. If there's something you like, let us know, because we'll continue to do it. If there's something you don't particularly like, let us know. I can't get rid of Morgan, so don't say that. I tried. He keeps coming back. <laughs> I think so. right. A lot of people want to, but, yeah. <laughs> but let us know, because we want this to be a show that you want to listen to. We really look forward to hearing from you. Yep. So guys, stay tuned. We got more stuff coming up. And once again, thank you guys, our players out there, once again, for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes.